podcast is brought to you by If you or a loved one ever find yourself on the wrong side of a jail cell, Cherry Bail Bonds is here to help. Don't just sit there waiting for justice to prevail. Give Max Cherry a call and get out on bail. As a retired police officer, Bail Bonds with over 20 years experience, I've seen what happens when suspects don't get bailed out. I opened Cherry Bail Bonds to be the swift hand of freedom good people need when trouble comes a-knocking. Max and his discreet team don't judge how you got into the situation. They put their focus on getting you out of it. They'll handle the details and use every connection to post your bail fast. Call Cherry Bail Bonds the moment hot water finds you. I'm always on call to offer my clients a quick way out. We'll help you stay out of the system and get you back with your family where you belong. Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Need you cool. Are you cool? Bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'ma get medieval on your ass. You're the shot for this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the light. Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome all you inglorious bastards to another edition of Pulp Reflections, the monthly series dedicated to taking a retrospective look back at Pulp Fiction as it turns 30. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and on this month's episode, aptly titled, Oh, Those Pulpy Ingredients, we will be taking an in-depth look at some of the films that influenced Pulp Fiction to see how these ingredients helped to build this amazing cinematic masterpiece. Joining me for this discussion is a newcomer to the show and co-host of the Film Geek Time Machine podcast, Mr. Austin Kennedy. Welcome, Mr. Kennedy, and may Tarantino be with you always. And also with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I'm, it's a pleasure to be on. I've been a big fan of the podcast, so thank you. Well, I'm very excited because uh, since you've been a fan, then you know I have like a, I want to say like a stable. Of, like, I feel like a Tarantino stable. Like I keep bringing people back. Yeah. And I love all the people I've had on in the last two seasons. Nice. And gotten really good friendships out of them. That's one of my favorite things about podcasting is I've become good friends with the people I've podcast with even though i've never seen them in the flesh i've seen them like i'm seeing you now on a screen but yet i've had some of the more rewarding conversations that i've had in my adult life with some of these people just being able to share a love of things so it's been like it's just been an awesome experience for me but for this season i really wanted to bring on new voices uh i've got a lot more females on this season which is i'm really excited for because tarantino's not just for for men and I, he does he's a big big proponent of the female and empowering them so i really wanted to bring on more females so we could kind of get the female perspective of what they think about tarantino you are not one of those guests but you are a newer voice which i'm super excited for because two reasons one it gives me a chance to reach out to other areas of the podcast universe that may not know i exist and it also allows me to introduce people who follow my show to shows they may not know exist. So I like to do that handshake. I really like that passing on of being able to find ourselves into new spaces, but also help other people find spaces they didn't know were out there. So that being said, why don't you tell us all about your podcast and what you do? 
Yeah, so um, I have a podcast called Film Geek Time Machine, and in that podcast, well, it kind of came from the fact that, so I used to be a film critic at the uh, from Minneapolis, and I used to uh, do, uh, I used to be a film critic for the Minnesota Film Board, and I kind of got burnt out watching new movies, mm-hmm. and so I, I pretty much just watch mostly old films. I'll watch like all the Oscar bait and stuff usually, but other than that, I'll just watch old films, and I never know what to watch because there's so many I want to watch, so I... I started doing like random number generator and going by year <laughs> yeah. and then picking a movie. And then I'm like, well, why don't I do a podcast of that? How can I do that? So the premise of the podcast is it's not even theoretically. I have a time machine on the podcast and I go back in time. What we do is we pick, usually pick a random date. Sometimes we do mm-hmm. a specific date, but we'll pick a random date and I'll go to newspapers.org or .com and they'll have, they have all the newspapers on there. So it's, I do the Minneapolis star and tribune and I pick the dates. So say it's like October 7th, 1987 and we'll go and we'll look at that date and we'll see all the movie times from that and I'm like okay at noon we're seeing this at two we're seeing this at five oh we can't do that at five because that takes 20 minutes to get to that theater like <laughs> so I really do it like we're doing a movie yeah because I used to do that in the 90s I used to just see like five movies a day I would jump from theater to theater and try to go see different movies so I thought I would go back and do that and then I brought on um, my friend Tim and he's not really so I'm the film guy because I went to film school at uh, mm-hmm. MC- in minneapolis but he's just a guy that likes movies and if he hates a movie he will yell about it so <laughs> i'm the one that does all the facts and then he comes in and is, so we kind of have a yin and yang yeah about that which is is kind of fun so well i just recorded one for 1947 we go from anywhere from the 20s wow. to the, so we do have one it will have aired by the time this airs we're doing we're doing one where we're going to uh the day pulp fiction came out in minnesota and not oh. see pulp fiction so oh wow so we don't, uh, well so we don't see it so, yeah, and we, well we did that too. Um, at the end of season one, we because we're on season two right now. Mm-hmm. The end of season one, we did. Uh, we went to the day Star Wars came out, and don't see Star Wars. Didn't wow, see Star Wars. yeah, I like that. I like that. I'm not seeing that stupid movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like that. Yeah, no. What's that line about? Oh, yeah. see Star Wars. That'll never take off. <laughs> let's go see the. <laughs> let's go see the car instead with James. <laughs> so that's what. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll do everything. We'll go see prestige films like um, upcoming. I'm going to be watching one for '82. And we're going to watch the theatrical cut for Blade Runner. So Ooh. I've never seen the the boring narration cut of narrate, you know, oh, yeah. so it'd be kind of fun to talk about. And then Grease 2, we're going to watch that one. And you have to, because <laughs> I've never seen that. Um, but I also, the whole point too, is to find gems. And there's a yes. couple of things that I found. Um, one was the gazebo from 1959 with Glenn Ford hmm. and Debbie Reynolds. It's a dark comedy. And it's like if Hitchcock would direct like a, a full-blown comedy, kind of like he did with Trouble with Harry. But um, the gazebo is really good, and it's kind of dark. And then um, another one that we found was Ladies in Retirement from 1941, which it was like <laughs> a, a dark thriller. It, it sounds stupid, Ladies it in sounds, Retirement. It sounds like some kind of search on a Pornhub now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. but it, it's it sounds dumb and we're like and the only reason why we saw it was because that was the only thing that started at 10 a.m mm. so we're like okay we're gonna go see ladies in retirement and we're like holy shit that movie was amazing wow. um because we also saw suspicion an alfred hitchcock movie that day and i'm like well ladies in retirement did hitchcock better than hitchcock that day so it's really good so I go on and on about it, but yeah, that's my podcast film geek time machine it's an amazing i love the premise i love i love that as podcasters, we've been forced since we're depending, especially if you're new to the game, right? Like if yeah. like you're like, I want to do this too. And it's become easier. Let's be honest. You know, like before, I think 2020 realized that we didn't have to have our own studios. We didn't have to go somewhere. You could buy very uh 
inexpensive equipment and do it right from your own your own home and do a really good job with it. Uh, I always tell people who ask me about, you know, my audio sucks this and I'm like, go back and listen to 2020 interviews with Tarantino on podcasts. And it sounds like he's on a dial-up phone. Like he just yeah. like for a guy who is so stuck on having perfection in his films, when he goes on an old podcast, it's like he's in his grandma's basement on a dial-up phone and you're like, Where's he right. talking to them from? Like, wh- why can't he get a good audio? He's a bajillionaire. He's got shitty audio. So, but to have these new concepts that you have to come up with, because, you know, you want to be different than yeah. other people, but it does make you kind of go, all right, how am I going to do something new under the sun? And I, I really right. love that what you've come up with. That's a one of my favorite new ideas I've heard. And I'm now kind of <laughs> jealous that I didn't think of it first. I'm kind of like really <laughs> jealous. I'm like, damn, that's an amazing fucking idea. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Now, before we jump into some Pulp Fiction talk, yeah. you did mention Pulp Fiction. What will yeah. be the movies that you skip, that you see instead of Pulp Fiction on the day that oh. Pulp Fiction is out? Yeah. So we saw, oh my God. So we saw, uh, a, it was a mistake, but we saw Exit to Eden with, uh, <laughs> with Dan, it's a Dan Aykroyd, Rosie O'Donnell, Dana Delaney, Gary Marshall film, and it's just awful. Uh, it sounds phenomenal. It, so bad. Much well, better than Pulp Fiction. I knew it was, I knew it was going to be bad, but so me and my co-host, we kind of picked together. We each pick a couple movies each, and he was like, I showed him this poster, and he's like, yes, and I'm like, no, 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 it's going to be bad, and he's like, oh, because he wants to watch bad movies. Yeah. I'm trying to find the gems. He wants to make fun <laughs> of bad movies. Then we did um, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Oh, yes. Which... That was my first time seeing it, and I, I really, I kind of liked it. It wasn't bad, yeah. It's, it's not no, a bad. It was a neat concept. It was kind of a meta movie, and I liked mm-hmm. that. We watched Only You, which was uh, Robert Downey Jr., Marissa Tomei, uh, Norman mm. Jupiterson romance, which wasn't very good. Ang Lee's Eat, Drink, Man Woman. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that, that one. We, uh, yeah, that was actually really good. I, I really liked that one. And then we watched, so we don't just uh, narrow it down to just 1994 movies. Whatever is in the theater, so even if it's a retro movie showing. Mm, okay. So at, at, it's funny. This is fitting because this is a Tarantino connection. Mm-hmm. We saw Switchblade Sisters. Nice. Uh, which are his Rolling Thunder Productions brought mm-hmm. out the 90s again. So, and, and that was my first time seeing that, and that was uh, a lot of fun, I thought. So I enjoyed that. So yeah, that's, that's what we saw instead of Pulp Fiction. Much better movies than Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I think I'm going to switch my podcast to an Exit Eden podcast <laughs> after this. <laughs> oh, so bad. <laughs> now, you did see Pulp Fiction. Oh, my yeah, question oh. for you next is, what is your personal connection to the film? Where did you first see it? And what has been its lasting impression on you? Okay, so um, my introduction to Tarantino was in January 94. I was at a sleepover. I was uh, 17, and they rented True Romance. So we watched True Romance, and I, obviously I didn't know who Tarantino was. Mm-hmm. I was just like, wow, this I, just the dialogue. In particular, the Gary Oldman Drexel scene just blew my mind. It was just so good. And then the rest of the movie was amazing. And then a couple months later, my friend was like, oh, you got to watch this movie, Reservoir Dogs. So then we rented Reservoir Dogs, and I, immediately I went to Best Buy and bought it. And I wore out my copy before Pulp Fiction came out. <laughs> I watched Reservoir Dogs so many times. And in fact, so I knew about Pulp Fiction because of the, the can thing in the summer. But it didn't come out here till October. So there was like three or four months while I was just waiting for it. I got all the film comment magazines. I got everything that was coming up for it. And I like made a scrapbook. And I had it like all over, plastered all over my wall. I was a senior in high school. I was cutting out all the newspaper clippings for Pulp Fiction. I was counting down the days and i went with a bunch of people we went to go see the 10 o'clock on a friday night screening and then as we're waiting for it 
I see my dad come out of the seven o'clock one. And he's like, mm-hmm. you saw before me. And I, and he just looked <laughs> at me and he goes, get ready. And then he walked away. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and I'm like, I was so excited because I was already loving Quentin Tarantino because of Reservoir Dogs was already like probably my favorite movie at that point. And then I saw it and I saw it three times that weekend. I went nuts and I, in its initial run, and people don't realize that movies used to run a lot longer in theaters. Yeah, yeah. I saw you get only two months out of them. The last time that I saw it in the theater was in May. So oh, well, it probably came May. back out for the uh, yeah. the Oscar stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I saw it 10 times in that run. Wow. In the theater. That's the, that's the most I've ever seen a movie. My second most is Grindhouse at 7. But I saw but I saw that 10 times in the theater. And then I probably saw it more times from, like, screenings and stuff. But, yeah, that movie, it showed me what – because I was about to go to film school the next year. I knew mm-hmm. that. And I was already, like, into movies because I was already into Scorsese and De Palma and Coppola. And – when, seeing what he did, it's it's seeing what a film fan like me can come up with. Yes. This is what a director can do. You don't have to follow the conventions. And it completely blew me away. I mean, people have been breaking rules before, but not on this level and not on a kind of a level that hit the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And it, it just kind of opened my eyes to what you can do in movies. And it just it chucked everything out the window. He's like, oh, see this? Don't worry about that. Here we go. And and so that's what that movie means to me. So it's a very, very important film and just shaping me as a person, just and also just being an amazing film. It's in one of my top it's I have the, the letterbox. I do the top four, and that's in my top four Pulp fiction. I've always tried to explain to people because I had a very similar reaction. You and I have a very similar path. I saw True Romance the summer before, okay. girlfriend. We went to see it. It's supposed to be, the, you know, it's Christian Slater, so it's probably going to be some kind of, you know, the true romance of Christian Slater. That's all exactly. you need to hear, right? Like, you don't need to see a trailer. Girls are going to like, we're going to go see this movie. All right, we're going to see it. Oh, it's going to be I like enjoyed it way <laughs> more than they did. <laughs> right, right, right. And then I bought the the VHS, and on the back it said, from the creator of Reservoir Dogs. So that's when I read Reservoir Dogs. And then, you know, it just becomes that thing. But I was going to school at the time, so we're a year apart. Yeah. I was going to school to be a teacher, which is interesting because I now am. But I was going to school to be a history teacher. And this is in my fall semester of my first year. And I see Pulp Fiction. I do a 180 degree turn of what I'm going to do in my life. I literally fail out of my first year of school because I am lucky enough in where I was going to school in New York. It was near Rochester, New York, which is just between Syracuse and Buffalo in the western side. And there was a mom and pop like uh, movie memorabilia store in the mall. Before, you know, they got bought like you know, back in the days when the malls were something awesome. Like there were really cool mom and pop shops that could survive and they had really cool things. And I bought the production script of Pulp Fiction I still have today. And I taught myself how to start writing on a word processor. And from that point on, I was in that I was going to do movies. So long story short, I went to film school, did all that stuff. And now I teach this kind of stuff to kids in middle school. So they're getting their intro level stuff. So it's worked its way around in a very long circle, but very similar journey. But when you say that it changed your life, some people think I'm insane when I say that. But if you're a film fan of a Gen X generation and you are our age and you saw that movie, and we came up from the 80s, kids. You know, they were great yep. movies when we were kids in the 80s. And, you know, I'm going back and revisiting them in some of my other podcasts. And, you know, some do and some don't hold up. But that's okay. <laughs> but there was nothing that I watched in my youth that changed my perception of film like Pulp Fiction did. And we talked about the last episode, which you haven't heard yet because it's not out yet. <laughs> it will be by the time people hear this one. But it, it, it changed film for the 90s. It changed film forever. Now, some of it's kind of swung back a little bit back to the way of the 80s where we just worry about blockbusters and shit now. So there has been a bit of, unfortunately, pendulum swing back. So we could use another Tarantino-esque kind of film to, to swing us back. But 
I mean, the 90s don't happen. To me, the 90s are like his and everyone else's 70s. You know, our, our parents' generation, early Gen X, late boomers generation of the 70s being their movies, the 90s were ours. And the 90s movies, I will put up against almost anyone, like the Pepsi Coke challenge, that the <laughs> 90s movies can handle. There's a lot of amazing films that came out in that decade that, you know, could go toe-to-toe with some of the greatest of all time. And it's because of not just Pulp Fiction, but Pulp Fiction was the movie that it broke through the noise. It legitimized independent film. It opened the door for guys like Fincher and Paul Thomas Anderson and all that stuff. Not that they wouldn't have been great filmmakers, but would they have had the opportunities that they got because they were now allowed to be writer-directors or, you know what I mean, really mm-hmm. take projects that most people wouldn't have touched in the right. 80s with a 10-foot pole. So I'm just glad to hear another person say oh, yeah. that Pulp Fiction changed their life because when I say people go, it's just a movie. I, I almost want to punch him in the face. Like, to you, it's just a movie. <laughs> to me, it was a fucking experience. It was an eye-opening, like, yeah. come-to-Jesus moment. Like, it was like, like the, when the briefcase opens up and there's the glow in the light, that's what Pulp Fiction was to me. I was like, uh, <laughs> I can't describe it, but it was there, you know? So yeah. I'm glad someone yeah. else also has the same feeling. I'm sure I'll find more along the journey of this season because we're solely talking about this movie. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. You're new. So this year, though, everyone gets the same guest questions because they're all Pulp Fiction related. All right, here we go. Number one. All right, our first one. Who is your favorite character from Pulp Fiction? So it's funny because, you know, you sent me these questions and I'm like, I I really had to think about it because I never really thought about it before, you know, because it's like it's Pulp Fiction. Like everything's great. But I'm I'm actually going to I'm going to say Butch. Oh, and the reason why is because he's driven by pride. Mm. And it's so funny because Marcella says, fuck pride. <laughs> and that was almost, yeah. I feel like Butch took that as a challenge mm-hmm. and said, well, he, because of pride, he ends up conquering at the end. And mm-hmm. because of that, so he kind of comes through. So that's kind of his drive. Like he almost saw it when he was asked to take the dive, that was a personal threat on his character. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to take your money and then I'm going to kill your guy and I'm going <laughs> to run out with your money and I'm going to make even more money because I'm going to bet against myself. You know, it's like, and, and so that's just uh, a bet against the fix. So I feel like that just seeing him and then just, but there was consequences, obviously. Yes. He had to go through, he had to go through like a rite of passage. Yeah. He had to earn the watch. He had, that's the funny thing is he had to earn the watch. Yeah. 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 You know, pride be damned. That's why he turns yeah. around. He had to earn the fucking watch. Yes. And anyone who's yeah. always like, well, why did that happen? I'm going to go, did you not hear fucking Christopher Walken <laughs> eloquently explain to you? He had to watch up his ass. He's yeah. got to hide the watch up his ass to earn yeah, this thing. Pretty much. So he had to go through the rite of passage. So I just feel like, and, and I really just like his character and I think it's good. And I really like, and I, and I know I was listening back to um, your podcast. And I actually really like the relationship between him and Fabian. And uh, Fabian gets such a hard... I secretly have reached out to her to see if she'll come on. I don't know if she will. I would love for her to get a chance in the sun. I don't think she's as bad as everyone gives gives her shit for. No. And so what, but what I like about that, what I like about their relationship is because I've seen people like that where you got the super tough guy, but then, oh, baby, it's okay, you know, like with the, mm-hmm. with the you know, with with, the, with his girlfriend. And so like that made sense to me. And I kind of like that dynamic of him just like, but then when he's away, he's like, and all the fucking things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or but how he screams at her, like, you oh. stupid fucking bitch, and throws right, the TV. Right. He goes, that's okay. It's okay. You forgot to watch. <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> it's not your fault. Or, you know, or, did you get your blueberry pancakes? You know, it's just like, <laughs> He's trying to, you know, it, it's so it's great. Um, but yeah, I think it, I, that for that reason, I think that's my favorite character in Pulp Fiction. Number 
two. What is your favorite song from the film soundtrack? Now, I have a buddy who hopefully maybe by this time I've had him record this because he always says to me, that's some motherfucking hard questions. So I want to have him <laughs> ask my little lead for that because I like asking these hard questions because it's like, it who's your favorite kid? And they're standing in front of you. You're like, oh, man. <laughs> you know? It's exactly what all these questions are. But yeah, so I'm going to say it's Comanche by the Ravels. That's the, the gimp scene. Yes. Like when the da 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 it propels you like this, something's about to fucking happen. But then when he gets up and he's going through the music still playing as he's looking at all the weapons mm-hmm. in the shop and just the way. And then when he looks up and he sees the sword and then it starts again with a da, 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 da. And you're like, Holy shit, here we go. And ever like, <laughs> yeah. so when I, even when I just hear that, when I'm not watching the movie, I, I mean, it, it immediately brings me to the, that scene in the film. 100%. Like, I can't, you can't unsee it. I mean, pretty much with all the all the songs in the movies. Well, yeah, there are a few films whose soundtrack and movie have married itself so synergetically together. Where if you put, like, if someone played the song in the background going by in the car, you're not thinking about, oh, that's uh, that's cool in the gang song. You're thinking that's when they changed the channel in the car to jungle. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 it's yeah. hard to break those those right. songs away from those moments. <laughs> yeah, no, that, yeah, that, it's it, absolutely that song. Yeah, for sure. and it's such an upbeat song for a horror moment. Yeah, that's the horror scene, right? Because anyone who's seen the movie now knows. Yeah. But when you first see, are sitting there in the theater, no one is thinking, unless you're degenerate and you have to be a super degenerate to think he's getting <laughs> fucked in the ass back there. No one is thinking there's a rape going on in the back. Like no. you think he's rapist and you think they're just beating him up or whatever. That's that's your mind. It's gone to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and even when he slowly puts his hand on the door, you're still like, oh fuck, what's about to happen? And when <laughs> it opens up, you're still like, what the fuck? Like you're almost like disappointed that he wasn't being tortured. This is far worse. <laughs> this is far worse the than audience, I expected. The, the audience reaction to that, because I still remember that, and, and that's why I went to go see it over and over again just to see the audience's reaction. Because I know what's coming up, and I'm like looking around, like, uh-huh. okay, here we go. It's like it's so much fun to for that shared experience mm-hmm. and just bringing new people. I'm like, you haven't seen it yet? Well, I'm seeing it again. Here yes. we go. <laughs> yeah, that song is amazing. Number three. Now, what is your favorite line of dialogue and or monologue from this choice set yeah. of monologue dialogue of the film? Even little quips are phenomenal in this film. Right, right. And well, yeah, the, the whole this whole movie has changed the way I talk. I I mean, every time I you know, Sprite, Sprite, mm-hmm. good, you know, it's like <laughs> everything, every little tiny thing in this movie. But I'm going to say probably just because it has a lot of meaning behind it. The second time Jules says the use equal 20, mm-hmm. you know, 17, 25, 17. Yeah, 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 yeah. When he says that, when he's when he repeats it again, because you all know how he said it before, mm-hmm. but he says it in a completely different way. And, you know, and then when he's talking about like, or it could mean and that whole thing about, but, you know, I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that whole scene, like that, that's to take something that was almost like, if you say it today, almost meme worthy, you know, it's like, yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. You know, and it's, it's something, it's a quotable line and people are going to be like, oh, they see that first scene, you know, and I'll strike down upon thee. And people are already ready to quote that. But then he says it again in a completely different way that you wouldn't have thought of. And you're like, oh, what, what's he going to do now? Is he going to kill him? But mm-hmm. he said it differently. And yeah, and and I being able to take something that you establish something and then repeat it and do it again in a completely way and use it in a psychological breakthrough. Yeah, because he's sitting there realizing because he just said, you know, I've had a, a, a religious experience is why I'm yeah. putting a life. Yeah. And we're all kind of like, eh, OK, but when he goes through the talk, you realize yeah. he has actually been sitting there thinking how many villains break themselves down to realize they're a villain in the moment. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Hans yeah. Lahn is not. Hans Lahn is always trying to 
justify what he's awesome. Yeah, right, First, right, like, right. I like my name, the Jew Hunter. Then at the end, he's like, with all the, I don't like being called the Jew Hunter. You know what I mean? It's like, bullshit. Yeah. You fuck up. What are you talking about? Where right. Jews is having a tough time. It's like, I'd like to believe that I am this, but in reality, I am the evil, mm-hmm. the tyranny of evil men. I am a piece yeah. of shit. And that's yeah. what I says, but I'm trying real hard. I want to switch. I want to be the shepherd. I want to be better than who I am. And it's an amazing way to yeah. end the film. You know what I mean? It's just well, an amazing uh, moment. When he breaks out into the, you're the weak. And I'm like, whoa. Yes, I know. So, it's so good. <laughs> and Sam Jackson, of course, delivers it. Amazing. And he should have won an Oscar. But anyway. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, apparently, yeah, yeah. apparently, a stupid guy runs around a lot and finds shrimp. He wins Oscars. <laughs> That's right. Well, was, uh, well, who won support? Oh, it's Martin Landau won for Ed Wood. Which, which is good. but He's, like, he's really good he's in the good. movie. But no, but I would have done Sam Jackson. That's like, hey, we don't have any more options to give Martin Landau an Oscar. Here's his Oscar. And then right, right, I hate right. those like, well, here you go. You're on your way out of life. So here's your Oscar. <laughs> we should have given you one a long time ago or something. Number four. Now, we've, we've discussed already two great scenes. And that was mm-hmm. just in from questions. What is your favorite scene from Pulp Fiction? So this took a while to figure out. <laughs> but I think, and I, th- and I think it's because it sets up the whole what you're about to see in the movie. It's the um, interrogation scene with uh, Frank Wally. Mm. That whole scene, they walk in and it's that hit because you just saw the scene when they're talking about, you know, foot massages, right? Mm-hmm. And you're laughing and you walk in, that scene starts in that same tone. Yes. It still has that same tone. It's like, oh, big kahuna burgers. Right. Good. <laughs> you know, it's like Jack in the Box, Wendy's, where you get it? You know, and he's just like, but then. When he, oh, did I break your concentration of that? <laughs> and everybody in the theater went whoop like that and was on the edge of their seat. And for the rest of the movie, they did not put their guard down after yeah. that. And it's because of this scene establishes like, hey, we're going to make you laugh one minute and then we're going to punch you in the gut the next minute. Yes. And that's mm-hmm. exactly. So I think that scene is probably my favorite because it sets up that whole, the whole movie of what you're about to watch. Because he does that throughout the movie, you know, you're like, oh, yeah. you're having fun on the date. Oh, no, she overdoses. And I'm yep. like, oh, you know, oh, Butch yep. is having a great time with his girlfriend. Oh, now he's got to go get the watch. You know, it's yep. just like, oh, they're having a great conversation. Oh, they shoot Marvin in the face. Marvin you know? in the face, yep. So all these different <laughs> things are happening. Oh, they're having pancakes <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> now we're robbing the street, oh, now, now they're being held up. And here it comes. So, <laughs> so he does that constantly in the movie. And I think that really sets it up. And also early on, when you're listening to the radio, you know, during the mm-hmm. opening when he switches that, that also gives you an indication on like, hold on, it's you're gonna, it's gonna be one moment, it's gonna be this, and it's gonna be this. I also think digress a little bit during that radio scene too. It's like John Travolta is listening to his surf music, and mm-hmm. Jules is like, oh, nope, I'm gonna say it's a cool game. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great turn too, because the kick in right off the any of you fucking pricks moving out, I'm actually giving a motherfucker last one. He's like, and you're yeah. like, holy shit, and you're amped up, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, hold on, let's, let's, let's chill this out a little bit. It's like, get down, get down. And you're like, oh, okay. And like the jump between the two songs yeah. is spectacular, yeah. and it, it works so, so well. Good. It's so oh. good. But yeah, but I, that scene, though, the Brett scene, you know, what? Do they speak English or what? Like, oh, my God, it's so good. Does he look funny. like a bitch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that that uh, TikTok thing? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Anyways, oh. but yeah, so that, that would be that scene. I think that really sets up the, the film. So Number five. And lastly, before we jump into talking about this film, what do you think is in Marcellus Wallace's briefcase so you know my my first answer is like i don't want to know you know it's like i don't want to know i'm with you but i almost feel like that it's you know because i've I've heard a lot of like psychological things it's whatever you think it is or whatever whatever that person looks in it's it's you know it's that's what 
you know, whatever is most cherished to them. But I almost feel like that if I'm thinking about it, actually thinking about it, maybe Marcellus Wallace is really into like high end art stuff. And it could mm. be like maybe a very important, famous artifact or a piece of art, you know, like by Picasso or something, you know what I mean? Some, mm-hmm. some very ancient artifact or something that he managed to swindle or get. And that he's trying to dealing with these yuppie guys trying to get or something. <laughs> and maybe that's what it is. And that's why everyone knows what it is. It's like, Oh, it's beautiful. Like, are we happy? Oh, we're happy. So yeah. maybe it's something like that. I don't know. So maybe like a famous artifact. I don't know. I always hate to shit on people's, I'm not shitting on yours, I hate yeah, that yeah. people are like, oh, it's the soul of this and that, and I, I, I'm always the person who's like, hey, if it's the soul of Marcellus Wallace, then it's the fucking soul of Marcellus Wallace, you know, like, who am I to say it's not, the thing that, <laughs> but Tarantino himself shits on yeah. your theory in the script, when Tim Roth's character, Pumpkin there, or Ringo, however you want to call him, yeah, yeah. goes, is that what I think it is? You know, at that moment, it's like, okay, it's something tangible, something that we would all know, because he goes, right. is that what I think it is? Right. And he's not thinking it's a soul. <laughs> but, That's again, if you like that, don't no. listen to me. I'm a fucking bald son of a bitch talking <laughs> movies, all right? You like what you like. I'm all for it. That's what I love about the MacGuffin of it. Well, that's why I think, because he's because he says that, because he says... Is that what I think it is? It maybe it's something like it's a very famous artifact or something. Yeah, it's got to be something. Yeah, it's almost like Indiana Jones. It is the. Right. He's got right. the thing from the Temple of Doom. He's like, is right. that right. you got that? <laughs> it's got those, that I is real. That, <laughs> that was I a real thing. Around, I have that around here. I know you. Yeah, <laughs> I have the the the, the last on Carstone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be a great tour. That'd be a great if he just went on his deathbed. It was really this. <laughs> he just goes away. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare to embark on a cinematic journey back through time to the iconic world of Pulp Fiction. Brace yourselves as we take a deep dive into the minutia, the brilliance, and the unforgettable moments that define this cult classic. Welcome to Pulp Reflections. For this episode's discussion, entitled, Oh, Those Pulpy Ingredients, we will be examining some of the films that influenced Pulp Fiction to see how they contributed to creating this amazing cinematic masterpiece. So sit back, relax, and let the discussion begin. Now, there is no other director before or after Tarantino who gets as much scrutiny for the references and homages that litter the entirety of the body of his work. Maybe it's because he is the most vocal about them, preferring to sing the praises of the films that inspired him rather than quietly bury them into his movies in hopes you don't see how his sausage is made. Now, whatever the case, no one gets more shit for this than him. Now, his critics say that he makes a habit of liberally lifting specific shots, characters, plot elements, or entire sequences from earlier films that he admires essentially remixing great moments in cinema for his own movies. They see blade homages like Pulp Fiction's Twist Contest referencing Eight and a Half or Mr. Wolf inspired by Curdled as crossing the line into unoriginality. Some even claim he seeks too much easy inspiration from classics, failing to put his own spin on them and instead recycles familiar archetypes and genres. They consider him a gifted technical filmmaker, but they think much of his work qualifies more as pastiche than groundbreaking creativity. However, as I feel my season two journey highlighted, Tarantino doesn't simply copy others' work. He intentionally weaves his deep, granular understanding of cinema history into postmodern love letters celebrating genres and visual styles meaningful 
to him. The many homages spotlight this encyclopedic film fluency while adding symbolic layers. Tarantino merges and transforms his sources into his own entirely unique breed of kinetic, darkly comedic, singularly structured narratives filled with specific pop culture riffs. His innovative sequences, character relationships, mix of violence and humor, snappy dialogue and monologue anchor his recognizable voice. So references that detractors call plagiarism actually showcase his unique postmodern authority equally inspired by spaghetti westerns, French New Wave, Hong Kong action, exploitation, and grindhouse cinematic influences absorbed into Tarantino's distinctive approach. His films pay respect by reinventing and reinterpreting the past through his own auteur vision. Mr. Kennedy, why the fuck does Tarantino get so much heat and shit for doing what every director since the dawn of film has done as even the early films drew inspiration from novels and stories and antidotes passed on that came before them. Well, I think it's because he publicly acknowledges it. You know, he's, he's just like, I'm a film fan. I like taking this. I like taking, I mean, he, he proudly, he proudly boasts that he does that. And I think people, other people don't, they're like, Oh, I'm going to take this shot here, take the shot here. But they don't, publicly say like, hey, I, I'm a big fan of this guy, so I'm going to take his thing. But he's like, I'm a big De Palma fan. So obviously you're going to see a lot of De Palma stuff going on in, in his movies. Mm-hmm. So I think it's because he is so vocal about about doing that, I think is why people give him a hard time. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And I will highlight some of that. But uh, on my other podcasts, this is some equally just shifty promotion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in our new venture over on the Cheeky Bastards, we just recently back in December talked about uh, two violent Christmas movies, one of them being Violent Night that came out last year. In this movie, it is a huge homage to the Die Hard, Die Hard 2, and even vocally says they're going to do moments from Home Alone, which, those of you who don't know, Home Alone is a love letter to Die Hard. I can send you a link to videos that point this out. But the people who made Home Alone were huge fans of Die Hard, and they made a kids version as a yeah. home as a letter of love for that movie. Now, I don't know why other people have such... A vitriol towards him when he does homages or references. And then, as you would think would be what people would want, he tells you, hey, guess what? I homage this. I, I saw this. You know, like he doesn't hide it. It's one thing to be like, no, I didn't, I definitely didn't use any of Lady Snowblood for Kill Bill. What are you talking about? Well, I don't even know where you, I don't know where you would even get that idea. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't hide it. He used, I mean, he uses the music from it in the scene. Like anyone who's seen Lady Snowblood, as I talked about last season, and then sees Kill Bill, Volume 1, you go, I get where a lot of this was referenced from. However, and I don't mean this as a Tarantino, I know probably like, oh, yeah, big deal. You're kneeling down sucking his dick. But I truly do believe, having now gone through a year of watching films that were heavy references or influences on them, and then seeing them with the movies, I see where the references come from. But I never once sitting there go, oh, my God, this is just blatantly this. You know, even the Lady Snowblood reference, I saw where he got the inspiration. But it's a completely different scene, completely different news, completely different everything he does with it. But you can see where the inspiration he's paying homage to it. You know, that's why I'm bringing some people on this. You know, we'll only talk about it on this episode because we're only going to do the references on this episode. <laughs> but I feel like we got to do it early because I'm I just I getting tired. I don't want to be the only person beating the drum. So I want to make sure I'm not the only person. But I had other people on last season. They agreed. We've, we went through it. We looked at them all. What is it? What, when will he ever get the credit he's due? I'm a Star Wars fan through and through. It's like that's the first set of movies that got me as a filmmaker, as a fi- film fan. And everyone knows Lucas was big on Samurai uh, Kurosawa films. Like everyone knows these things, and he doesn't get the shit for it, which is fine. 
why is Tarantino being dragged across concrete here yeah. for fucking referencing this shit? Right. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand either. It's funny you bring up George Lucas because, yeah, I mean, the Hidden Fortress, obviously, yeah. a lot of stuff. That, but also, if you've ever seen Howard Hawks's Air Force, there's uh, the battle scene, the first scene when they when uh, in Star Wars when they leave the Death Star and they have that TIE fighter battle, that is almost shot for shot from Air Force when you're watching that movie. You're like, uh, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, but people don't give other people, uh, other filmmakers as hard of a time, I don't think, as Quentin. So usually when I bring up Quentin, they're always like, oh, yeah, he just kind of rips everyone off. And I'm like, come on. You know, it's just like he's just a film fan. He's he's taking all the stuff he does, especially in Pulp Fiction, and he puts it in a blender. And he's like, this is what comes out. This is what uh, um, what happens when a film fan makes a movie. You get mm -hmm. all these ingredients and boom, they come out like this. Well, it's interesting because uh, this is not to be political, but the way people talk about how they hear things about Tarantino and probably have no information. It's a lot of like what our political world is here in America. Not a lot of people have information. They hear quips, they hear some things, and they take that hearsay as fact without checking it. They're too lazy to actually look into it. It's like, it's easier to grab on the thing you heard because it already gives you the confirmation bias you were looking for anyways. So you just go, no, that's, that's the way it is. And you go, well, did you look this up? And you go, no. Have you seen Lady Snowball? No. Well, then how do you know he ripped it off? Oh, I just know. Ah, so you're a fucking idiot. That's what you're saying to me. Gotcha. <laughs> now that we know where we're at, I'm going to stop talking to you because you're a fucking moron and your mouth breathing is probably going to be contagious and I got to step away from you for a minute because you're an idiot. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Mario Bava's Black Sabbath, and uh, Adam Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs> I think Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is probably obvious, all right, why it's been such an influence to me. Um, Black Sabbath, actually, I, I Mario Bava became one of the first directors that I got to know by name because I saw Black Sabbath on late night television and would like, kind of look forward to seeing it pop up again. He's a great Italian horror filmmaker. And uh, then I started noticing other movies in the TV Guide that had his name, and they all had this big, cool, operatic quality about them. And uh, and I have to say, it was both, I think, Sergio Leone and uh, Mario Bava that got me thinking in terms of shots, as opposed to just, uh, oh, uh, oh, I like this movie. Oh, this guy did a movie I like. Well, I'll see another movie that that guy does because I like that movie. As opposed to just recognizing the name and hoping that another good movie would come out, I actually started recognizing a cinematic style and a signature and a quality in the movies that was just beyond a good movie versus another good movie or a not-so-good one. So even, you know, even when I would see a Mario Bava movie I didn't like, I still recognized the style and uh, that same operatic quality. Adam Castillo Meet Frankenstein is... That was probably my favorite movie when I was really, really, really young. And the thing about why I think it was so influential is I remember at that time period, my two favorite movies, types of movies in the world were monster movies. And in particular, I, you know, like I guess the universal monster movies uh, from the 30s and 40s, the 30s. And, and uh, uh, screwball comedies, not screwball comedies, but uh, uh, physical comedies. Like uh, Abbott and Costello, I love them. All right, a lot of uh, every kid I knew at that time loved Abbott and Costello. But Jerry Lewis, Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, I thought all those guys were great, and those were like my favorite type of movies. I loved W. C. Fields too. I was crazy for W. C. Fields. And so when I watched Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, it seemed it it was it bended my mind about the fact that my two favorite genres, even though I didn't know what the word genre meant, all right, could be put put into one movie. I didn't know that you could do that. I always thought there there's this kind of movie and then there's this 
Einstein in the movie, and it was, you know, like uh, uh, chocolate and peanut butter. All right. Hey, you got your comedy in my uh, horror film. Hey, you got your horror film in my comedy. Hey, pretty good. Um, but the fact that I was even, you know, at a little boy at seven or eight, uh, or even maybe even younger, making genre distinctions, not knowing that, because uh, uh, I literally thought, "Wow, this is the greatest movie ever." The two my two favorite types of movies in one. When it's scary, it's really scary, and when it's funny, it's really funny. And I guess I've been trying to do that a lot my the whole rest of my career. Now I could spend an entire season on just cinematic influences, references, and homages that exist in this film alone. Instead, we're going to spend the remainder of this episode discussing and examining some major ones to once again decipher if Quentin paid homage or blatantly ripped them off. Now, first up is Black Sabbath from 1963. The Italian horror anthology film Black Sabbath consists of three separate horror stories with different characters and plot lines. Tarantino and his co-writer Roger Avery directly modeled the non-linear narrative structure of Pulp Fiction on this format. Pulp Fiction tells several interconnected crime stories out of chronological sequence featuring different protagonists. Just as in Black Sabbath, Tarantino and Avery wanted to create jolting transitions that surprise the audience as the film jumps back and forth in time. They highlight the connections between characters that may seem unrelated into their separate stories. For example, the audience discovers that Vincent Vega and Jules Winfield, the hitman in the first story, cross paths with Butch Coolidge from the third tale. The unexpected intersections between ostensibly standalone stories in Black Sabbath intrigued QT and Roger. By borrowing its anthological structure, they can move episodes of Pulp Fiction forward, backward, and sideways in time, keeping viewers off balance and riveted by the intricate plot web. The film's fractured timeline and surprise reveals about hidden links between characters have become signature Tarantino narrative techniques ever since. Now, Mr. Kennedy, in your opinion, does Tarantino adapting the non-linear storytelling device of Black Sabbath as not only his narrative structure for this film, but many of his films that have followed, do you like it? Do you feel it's gimmicky? Or... Is this just now who Tarantino is? Um, so, the, you know, that's just who he is. So, now I've seen Black Sabbath. I've seen that probably like 20 years ago. It's 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 a cool movie. I, I like it. It's really good. Yeah, I don't think, like, obviously he didn't rip it off. He was just like, oh, I like anthology films. I'm going to, let's do an anthology. So, I recently was just watching, because I was watching, not even just because of this uh, podcast upcoming, but I always watch look up YouTube videos of Quentin and stuff mm. like that. I was watching him talking about coming up with the idea of trying to do Pulp Fiction. Originally, he wanted to do it like with Tony Scott. He was like, hey, Tony, I want you to be, you can direct one of the scenes and Roger's going to direct one of the scenes. Yes. I'm going to direct one of the scenes. And then it ended up being like a singular voice because he was taking characters from this story and this story and this story. I'm like, ah, maybe I should just direct the movie. That's just my next movie. But the way he does nonlinear and um, one of my, the most influential things when I first started liking Quentin when Pulp Fiction came out was watching the Charlie Rose interview yes. in 1994. That was a big deal for me. I remember taping it and watching it over and over again. And he talks about that where it's like, are you just trying to be different? He's like, no, because in a novel that it just goes back and forth like that, you wouldn't even question it. But because it's yes. in a movie, you haven't seen it like that. People are like, oh, it's a gimmick, but it's not. And he's so he was just trying to make it the norm. He wasn't trying to, you know, do something radically different. He was just like, why, why can't it be this way? You know, I'm not, he wasn't, I don't think he was trying to make a statement. He was just like, this is, this is just how the way it should be anyways. I mean, he, he nonchalantly did it. And uh, that's just who he is a filmmaker. He doesn't do it all the time in his movies, but I, yeah, I just think that's just who he is. So it's just, I don't think it's gimmicky at all. Now, do you feel this film would be as memorable if it was told linearly? 
Because I have a poster, which is weird, in my bathroom. Uh, you can find out there, it, someone has uh, Pulp Fiction, and they give you the timestamp in the film of where the story starts. So obviously the very first thing would be the gold watch speech, but it yeah. works its way all the way to when he says, Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead, and he rides off in the music kicks. That's the end of the film. Yeah. If you go literally, it's when Butch rides away in the motorcycle, film is over. Yeah. Would it be as good a film? In your opinion. You know what? That's a good question. Obviously, I, it would probably still be an amazing film, but I don't think it would have the impact because see, when Travolta gets shot and then when he comes back. Yes. I mean, you're like, whoa, shit. You know, like mm -hmm. you wouldn't have that moment. And then that during that whole story, there's just you're laughing at a lot of stuff, but there's still something a little dark and sad about it because you already know that he in the back of your mind, he, he's dead. <laughs> you know, yeah. no, I don't I don't think it would have the same impact. Um. It, would it still be good? Absolutely. It would still be an amazing movie, I bet, because it would still have the writing, the directing and stuff. But I don't think it would have that strong of in, as an impact on the mm -hmm. viewer, I don't think. Well, it also would not end, and it would be in the beginning of the film, your statement that you said about Samuel Jackson revisiting oh, his yeah. speech that would not end the film. And yeah. we would have that powerful moment early, and we would just have this... I won't say comedic mode. It's still, I mean, what Butch, Butch goes with the end of the film is a good third act. I mean, it would still be a very powerful, like, holy fuck, oh, yeah. third act. But I do like how that's put in the middle. And then we get Marvin. You know, I mean, yeah. we get the Marvin part towards the yeah. third as well. So, yeah. but yeah, so there you go. That would be a, a different take on Pulp Fiction. The other <laughs> thing is, is, we'll talk about it for uh, when we talk about uh, John Travolta. Uh, I did, well, when you hear this, we've already talked about it. But for the character study, John Travolta has, would have had a better character arc in the linear version because he starts off as a douchebag we shoot marvin in the face he's a real asshole at jimmy's he then finally goes on the date with mia and becomes a better person to the time he gets shot in reverse he starts off as this real lovable guy we like and then he's a fucking asshole by the end of the movie <laughs> so you're not as upset when he dies you know, you're kind of like ah, he kind of deserves a bit of a prick the whole time so <laughs> travolta's right. character jules or vince has a better arc if we go linear if we go not linear he's just a real cocksucker he just goes from all oh, lovable guy to fuck that guy what a dick yeah. <laughs> the whole idea of pulp fiction was the idea i was going to do three crime stories right three crime stories Kind of like the stories you've, you've seen a zillion times before. Right. But I was just going to take them different ways. And maybe have the scenes that don't play out in movies happen. Right. Like right. Get, let real life intrude on genre. Right. And right. when real life does intrude on genre, it fucks shit up. Right, right, right. And that's part of what I wanted to go with for this. So I come up with the idea of the three separate stories. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. They don't have to be that separate a story. What if it all takes place in a certain community right. of criminals? Right. And it's Los Angeles. We're going to make a Los Angeles movie like the way right. people make New York crime right. movies. Right, right, right. And uh, we can do that. And then maybe it's about a community of characters. And so they could overlap. And that's stupid shit like, right. you know, uh, one character from a movie stops at a red light and another character from a movie right. pulls up next to him and right. they look at each right, other. Right, right, right. But actually really intertwine it where this character is the star of this story. Mm -hmm. But he's also in the second story, but he's not the star of it. He's right, a supporting right. character. Right, right. And somebody who's small can be the star of the third story. So that's where I got the idea of overlapping them right. and actually having it be, a, you know, a one story, of, three stories about one story. But then, so I write the first story. Which is the John and Uma stuff. Right. Yeah. And then I write the second story, which is the Bruce stuff. Right. And then it comes time to do the third story. And the third story was a completely different story than was in the movie. It was about like a, you know, a black Bonnie and Clyde. Right. 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 Uh, a group of bank robbers. I was, right. I, again, I was also thinking at one point, you know, in the middle of the script, that maybe that would be a good part for Fish and Queen Latifah. Right. Wow. 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 You know, wow. Be a couple, yeah. you know, uh, black bank robbers. Right. 
So after writing the first story and the second story, it came time to do the third story. And I'm like, I didn't have enough time right, right. to interject a whole new story right, right. into the piece. Uh, you know, and besides the fact, I didn't think I had time by that after two stories to introduce a new characters that, right. you know, the audience didn't right. know yet. And I was writing it in Amsterdam at the time. And I thought I fucked up. Uh. I mean, I've got through like two stories and here I am. My third shit don't work. Wow. It ain't going to wow. work. This well, I'm here to tell you it ain't going to work. Well, shit, what the fuck am I going to do now? Wow. That's the whole wow. idea was three stories. Mm-hmm. But what I did do at the beginning was I had the whole section with Jules and Vincent when they get yes. that briefcase. Yes. And they talk that shit with yeah, that yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I had the thing where they were in the car and the gun goes off. Yeah. Blows the guy's head off. And that kind of ended it. Uh. And so now I'm thinking about it and I go, well, wait a minute. I don't have time to start a whole new story. Right. But what if I... Just go back to that one. Yeah, yeah. Finish that. And it's not so much a story. It's like how their morning ends up. Wow. So let me just, you know, let me take it all the way to the, uh, all the way, almost to the point where I had it in the script at the beginning, right. but stop before they get in the car and blow the guy's head off. Right, right. And then we start with that. They wow. blow the guy's head off and it's how they deal with that morning. Right, right, after, right, right. From that point on. Right. And I thought that was a good idea. Fantastic. And actually, it was such a good idea when I was writing it that I was almost thinking I'd, I'd fuck shit up by having such a big epic. I go, right. this could actually be one of the quirkiest, smallest crime movies ever made right, right, about right, these right, guys right. just trying to get blood off of their right. fucking, you know, and right. brains out right, of their right, hair. Right. But, you know, but that's how it, you know, that's how it kind of worked out. One story just didn't work at all. I just continued the other one, right. just finished their day, right. and voila, Pulp Fiction. And there, and there it is. All right. Now, our second film is Binding Clyde from 1967. This 1967 crime thriller opens with two people, a male and female, discussing how a life of crime is more rewarding than living the normal day-to-day mundanity of everyday life. Clyde tries to convince Bonnie to join him in a life of crime, while in Pulp Fiction, Pumpkin is trying to convince Honey Bunny that their current criminal ways need to change or they're going to wind up dead. During both scenes, a waitress pops in and out, and by the end of the scenes, our male characters have convinced their female counterparts to see things their way. By emulating Arthur Penn's opening jolt into a character's narrative, Tarantino shakes audiences into the immediacy of his crime story from the first second. In interviews, Tarantino has acknowledged drawing deliberate inspiration from Bonnie and Clyde's unsettling zoom-in to Dunaway's intense face, using it to introduce his own plotting criminals with equal verve. Besides grabbing viewers' attentions, like Bonnie and Clyde, the opening scene also establishes Tarantino's playful, non-linear storytelling style that will fracture the film's timeline. These illusions show how he relied on previous crime classics while finding his own creative twist to launch a definitive modern pulp experience. Mr. Kennedy. I spent the last season examining numerous films that influenced Tarantino's films to see if he referenced them or blatantly ripped them off. Now, Pulp Fiction is the tip of that spear due to its enormous popularity and its place in cinematic history. It has been dissected like no other film. QT detractors beat the drum for him being a hack who just rips people's movies off and copies and pays moments of them into his own films. A majority of the rest of this episode, we'll be trying to decipher which side of the coin we feel he lands on with Pulp Fiction. Homage or blatant theft. In your opinion, do you feel he stole this one from Bonnie and Clyde? Or do you feel he paid homage to it and its own? I think it's homage. I think it's homage. I think it's its own. Um, I, well, Bonnie and Clyde, I love that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also do, uh, um, uh, I also teach out of middle school too. And I do film history classes. So Fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and and he's do... bald, folks. You can't see that he's bald. We're right, both right, now right. currently wearing and glasses. We may be twins. I do, um, 
I do adult community ed too, and I do uh, film history classes for that. And I show Bonnie and Clyde a lot. Um, so it's yeah, I love this movie. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's one of those movies that he saw he saw the diner scenes, and he's just like, oh, you know, he just got the idea. I don't think he ripped it off. I mean, how many? Agreed. That means every diner scene ever made is a rip off. <laughs> Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, come on. It's like I don't think it's you know, it's just two people talking about crime and stuff. And I don't know. I just think he saw that and it made it its own. So yeah, it's it's an homage. Thank you. I, I agree. But again, people think I just beat the drum. And I sent you the link. So there is a link up there. Now, maybe I'll put it in the description so you can see people going through the references of the films. And one of the scenes they put side by side is they will show part of Bonnie and Clyde alongside of the opening of Pulp Fiction. And there are similarities. You know, you'd have to be fucking blind or have a head contusion not to see there are similarities. But in the same respect, they are completely different. Bonnie and Clyde don't start jump up and say, everybody, every motherfucking freeze or kill every motherfucking one of you. <laughs> that does not happen in that. And... I like that he used this because when we start, you know, we first sit down and watch this film, Pulp Fiction, and it ends there with that cold open, as everyone calls it nowadays. You know, that cold open. We don't just go right into the titles. We give you something. You forget about that scene for two plus hours because you're sucked into Vince and Jules. You forget about this opening moment until, I'll be honest with you, now that I know this movie, but even for a while, when you're still at the diner, I'm so enwrapped in the story, I forget they're at the same fucking diner that these two assholes are, me too, me until too. they jump up. And then I'm like, oh my God, how did I forget about this? This scene had me on the edge of my seat when they jump up, and then we left it, and I forgot about it for two hours. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you hear that, Garcon, coffee, and you're like, oh yep. shit, like, here Oh it comes. yeah, <laughs> here we go. So yeah. I too am in agreement with you. It's just such a great opening moment. Like it really is. And it goes into like a motif. He opens his first film with an amazing dialogue sequence in Reservoir Dogs. And then he goes ahead and he, obviously the opening of Reservoir Dogs is, is a better opening sequence because we are now learning about these characters briefly. And then we're just going to be thrown into a world of never being able to know them again. And we're going to get these little moments to try to decipher who do we think of the characters who are missing are alive, dead, who's the rat? Like, it's a great way of him to slowly kind of also lay some breadcrumbs in it and have an amazing opening. And then we just jump into someone being shot in the back of a car. And this is similar. It's like a reverse. Like, we took the shot in the back of the car and we started that in the beginning of the movie. We're like, okay, we're going to all of a sudden jump into a crime. And then, oh, we leave you. And now we got cool music. We got this thing. Oh, here's two hitmen. And we're going to follow these two hitmen. Oh, wait, here's a boxer. Oh, we're back to the two hitmen again. <laughs> He's like, where, where, where are we going? And then, boom, we land on them at the end. And like you said, the movie would not have the power it does. And I think maybe this now, us talking about it, this opening scene shows that without this moment, we can't cut from it and come back to it. We have to somehow interchange it by using it as the opening and forgetting about the other conversation yeah. we can focus on this and we'll come back to the conversation so now we know who these two people are and we have an entire movie to meet the other people so when we get back we already know who they are we don't have to fucking worry about learning who the fuck are these two assholes over here robbing a coffee store we've had a five second or a five minute introduction with them and we know what they're about and now we go off so when we come back two hours later we know them and now we're like oh we know them we're like ooh, two opposing forces are about to hit head on you know, right. and one of them yeah. just happens to be lucky that he just got shot at and believes God stopped a bullet. <laughs> because otherwise, as he said, you'd be dead as fried chicken. On so, any other day, yeah. On yeah. any other day, 
20 minutes <laughs> earlier. <laughs> if Marvin hadn't been fucking around told us about the guy in the bathroom, I don't see Jesus. You're seeing Jesus right now. <laughs> now, do you feel the naysayers have a point, or are they just uninformed, mouth-breathing dipshits with nothing better to do than bring people far more creative than themselves down? Yeah, I, I, I really do. I really don't think, because you're, you're going to ask on, on all these, I don't think he rips off. I don't. I wouldn't call any of these ripoffs really. I, I I really think he's an homage because what he does is he uses his inspiration as a starting point. Yes. And then he takes it and makes it his own and twists it around and then he does something completely different with it. Um. So he he will take something and then he'll like oh I like this I'm gonna throw that in the movie but then he'll do something different with it. He's not gonna just put it in there and just imitate it. So he doesn't imitate things. He takes things and makes it his own. And to me, that's an homage mm -hmm. that's ripping it off in my opinion. And, and something that they would do, there was a lot of, uh, this is really weird uh, reference here, but a uh, spy hard spy <laughs> hard with Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. There, there, it was a parody film, yes, not, really, not a really good one. And the best thing about it was the weird out opening sequence, the, the, <laughs> the spy hard. But anyways, what, what they did in that movie was they referenced uh, Pulp Fiction by just simply having Leslie Nielsen put on like a long haired wig and a ponytail and then had the female lead dress up like Uma Thurman and they did do the dance. They don't do anything with it. They just do the dance. That's just imitating it, trying mm -hmm. to make it funny. That's that's different than taking something and making an homage to it. So it, he's not imitating. He's he's making it its own. So, yeah, I think the naysayers, I don't think they know what they're talking about. I think what you said earlier, they're right. They hear little sound bites of people going, oh, he's a ripoff, he's a ripoff, he's a ripoff. So they believe it. They don't actually do the homework. Exactly. And find out the facts. And trust me, as teachers, nothing chafes our ass more than you not doing your fucking homework that we spent a whole weekend putting together, you pieces of shit. Get <laughs> That's out right. there. That's right. That's Turn right. it in, goddammit. It's a very frustrating thing. I think he would win every Iron Chef show. And what I mean by that is every dish we've ever eaten. Whether it comes from, you know, which is what I love about America, what other people don't, but the melting pot. All these cultures bringing in stuff. We fuse things together. We try new things. Nothing is technically new under the sun, but people put their own spin on it. And that is exactly what I believe he's doing. He is a master chef who's taking all these ingredients and putting them in. And it turns out to be something far more spectacular more times than not. And he would never, in his mind, I think, put himself above the filmmakers who come before him. He would just hope that he's doing their stuff service. You know, it's like, it's almost like, thank you so much for making this. It influenced me as a child. I now have a reference and knowledge of film that I never thought I would. And I'm going to take what you taught me and I'm going to do it better because that's what the teacher wants. They want to pass it on to the next person to become the master. That's the whole fucking point. Yeah. And I think he has done that magnificently. Yeah. And it's why I'm a fan of his. Because of what he does. because it just It's a different way of cinema that I'd never seen before. And I can see 27,000 copycats, but no one can copy his style because if they could, and this is what me and my buddy Steve say, if it's so fucking easy, why don't we have more Tarantino? Exactly. If yeah. it's so fucking easy, all you naysayers, why do we not have more? Because maybe one point of the season, we're going to talk about the ones who tried and failed to be like him, and you'll see just how fucking hard it truly is to be Tarantino and do it like he does it. Yeah, there, there's only one. There's only one person. It's only that, one, and, yes. And, and it, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. There's Yeah, obviously, people that try, uh, boondock saints. Um, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there's people that try to do it and then fail at it. And mm -hmm. and uh, But, yeah, it's no one else can do it like he does. He's, he's, he's incredible. This place, a coffee shop. What's wrong with that? 
Nobody ever robs restaurants. Why not? Bars, liquor stores, gas stations. You get your head blown off sticking out one of them. Restaurants, on the other hand, you catch with their pants down. They're not expecting to get robbed. Not as expecting anyway. I bet you could cut down on the hero factor in a place like this. Correct. Same as banks, these places are insured. Manager, <laughs> you don't give a fuck. You're just trying to get you out the door before you start plugging the diners. Waitresses, fucking forget it. No way they're taking a bullet for the register. Busboys, some wetback, getting paid $1.50 an hour. Really give a fuck you're stealing from the owner? Customers sitting there with food in their mouths, they don't know what's going on. One minute they're having a Denver omelette, next minute someone's sticking a gun in their face. See, I got the idea. The last liquor store we stuck up, remember? All the customers kept coming in. Yeah. You got the idea, taking their wallets. Mm -hmm. Now that was a good idea. Thank you. Made more from the wallets than we did from the register. Yes, we did. A lot of people come to restaurants. A lot of wallets. Pretty smart, huh? Pretty smart. I'm ready. Let's do it right now, right here. Come on. All right. Same as last time, remember? <coughs> Your crowd control. I handle employees. you, honey bunny. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! And the you fucking pricks move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! Our next film that we'll be talking about is His Girl Friday from 1940. Now, Quentin Tarantino crafted the flirtatious dynamic between Mia Wallace and Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction as an homage to the rapid-fire romantic comedy of Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell from this 1940s classic. The verbal sparring between newspaper editor Walter Burns, played by Grant, and his ace reporter ex-wife Hildy Johnson, played by Russell, in His Girl Friday made it one of the sharpest and wittiest romantic pairings in film history. Tarantino specifically wanted to infuse Mia and Vincent's conversation at Jack Rabbit Slims with the bouncing comedic energy of classic Howard Hawks banter. In Pulp Fiction, we see Mia and Vincent riffing spontaneously as they discuss everything from uncomfortable silences to favorite TV shows to the novelty of eating burgers and shakes at a retro diner. The scene snaps with cleverness and irony, much like Hildy and Walter's exchanges. Vincent's gentle prodding about what brought Mia to Los Angeles echoes Walter slyly nudging Hildy to stay in journalism and take him back. Tarantino keeps Mia and Vincent's dynamic fresh and lively as a tribute to Grant and Russell's embodiment of perfect screwball chemistry. The director didn't want typical first date conversations, but sparks flying between opposites attracting, with colorful digressions revealing personality, just as His Girl Friday did inventively for its era with machine gun repartee. Mia and Vincent's mutant offspring update, that classic battle of barbs and magnetism between reluctant lovers for the 1990s. Tarantino took his a step further by making Mia a honey trap, by creating a mythology of danger around her with the discussion Vincent and Jules have with one another at the beginning of the film, which is then further emphasized by the bar back at Marcellus' strip club later in the scene. Now to hammer the point home that Mia could be bad for Vincent's health, when the two first meet on screen, we see Mia's feet in the foreground to emphasize the foot story from earlier with Vincent in full head-to-toe in the background. Now, Mr. Kennedy, later this season, I'll be taking a further in-depth look at Mia and Vincent's flirtatious and near-deadly date. However, yeah. what lasting impression did this segment of the film have on you, and what do you feel might have transpired had Lance, that pothead motherfucker, not run out of balloons? <laughs> Everyone forgets. Had there been balloons, 
and not baggies. Mia might not overdose, and something far worse might have happened to our poor <laughs> lovers later on in that film. It would have been a different film. Either way, Vincent's dead. You know, Vincent so dies. <laughs> One way, it's a bit like, oh, you should have yeah. talked shit to Butch. And another way, it's like, oh, you shouldn't have fucked Mia. <laughs> right, exactly. So, yeah. No, exactly. That's what would have happened. I mean, it was definitely going towards that way. Travolta, obviously... With his little monologue in the bathroom going like, you know what? And then even when he comes out, he's like, <laughs> Mia, I got to go. So, but I think, I think Mia would have been really pushing on it, you know, and because it looked like she, she was going to do, be doing that. And, and I don't think that's the first time. I don't think that's the first time. I, I, I kind of got the impression that she has done this before. With or other that, people. or oh yeah, or other people have uh, been uh, maybe Rocky Horror. I don't maybe know. Maybe Tony Rocky Horror. She likes the big boys. She likes the big boys. Well, the why the way she talks to about that, like she was like she the way she does that when she denies it, and she's just mm-hmm. like really the only thing I touch was this hand at my wedding, and she goes, does that little face like hmm, and I'm like really, sure. <laughs> I don't know about that. I I don't know because because it sounds like she's intrigued. Like oh, did it involve the f word? Like she was actually kind of into it. So I don't know. Well, it's funny is she says the only thing I she shook of mine was my hand. Yeah, but that's shook. That's a different term. Oh, that is shook true. Shook is a <laughs> you shook. The only thing he shook of mine was yeah. my hand. And I mean, he didn't tap something. I'm just saying, shook and tap are two different things. Yeah, right. I like, mean, if, if you would. You know, put a gun to me and you're like, what, what is your actual opinion? I, I think she did have sex with Tony Rocky or so. Well, we'll discuss further in the season, but since we're talking a little bit about it here, but yeah. if you watch the film and this is intentional yeah. and this is, you know, these are these little layers. Which, again, this is where I'll say that to the detractors, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about because this films are layered with subtext and foreshadowing. Every scene that Mia and Marcellus are in together, they do not talk. They do not share any kind of loving anything with one another that a normal man and woman relationship would have together. There's never a single moment that we feel the two of them are actually engaged in some kind of a relationship, or at least one that is uh, of loving nature, right? So she probably is unfulfilled at the time, or again, we don't know their character either way. We don't know what's happened between them. Maybe she has done some things that, you know, (laughs) are kept secret that other people in the know know. He has been in Amsterdam, so he doesn't know, which is why they do share a little bit of a laugh there. There is an insider information that not everything's there. Maybe she's just a trophy wife. We don't know, but you can tell in that moment at that scene that she is intrigued by Vincent. Vincent is something that she has not had in her life in a while, and it intrigues her. And Vincent is equally intrigued by her, and it puts danger. The whole scene is danger, and it's, again, like I said earlier, it's the subtext. It's the layering. It's that foot story, that talk of Tony Rocky Horror is intentional. The shot of her feet alone standing with him is intentional. All of this is to let us know, danger, Will Robinson, danger. <laughs> and you are in trouble, Mr. Vince Vega. You're right. in trouble and you don't know it. She is the honeypot and you are in trouble. The bear is not, <laughs> it's not friendly. He's going to hurt you badly. Goldilocks is in trouble. So it's a great moment. It's a great scene. It's, I'm going to have a fan theory. I think because he was in the bathroom for so long, I think he jerked off. Because when he comes out, <laughs> think, think about it. When he comes out, I don't want to be too disgusting, but it's men we know. Pre, you know what? We're all fired up. Afterwards, we're like kind of relax. And he's like, hey, Mia, yeah, I'm going to get going. I think he said, I've got to do this now or else I'm going to lose my head if I go out there. So 
That's just my fan theory because he was in there a long time. Like she ODs and he's in there a long yeah, 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 yeah. time. So it's <laughs> funny. Oh, that's an interesting point. Um, and also, I do think that she has a reputation because it's implied when Paul Cauldron is like, "Have you met Mia?" You know, know. <laughs> have you met Mia? It's like, no. And then Sam Jackson starts laughing, you know, it's like, <laughs> he's like, I got to take a piss. But, you know, yeah. but it's <laughs> like, oh, this, this between y'all. <laughs> y'all. So I, I feel like that, but Vincent's not in the know because he's been gone. Mm-hmm. So I think there yeah. is like when you scamps get together, you're worse than a sewing circle. I think there is a reputation yeah. that Mia might might or at least a hint at a reputation because whether women know this or not men we tell stories and they're always more exaggerated so you know oh did you get some last night you bet i did (laughs) i slept with her her sister and her mother it was crazy barely got barely got popcorn at the film (laughs) so so there's probably that like she says when you scams get together it's you know worse than a sewing circle so there is a little bit of this insider info on her that the men are sharing, yeah. but we don't know for sure. No. But what we do know is that she is a temptress and other people have been tempted. And when they got tempted and they reached too far, they found themselves thrown from a third story building yeah. through a glass enclosed <laughs> fucking <laughs> greenhouse. Ass over the belt. Fucking <laughs> up the way someone talks. Yeah. All right. Yep. So that being said, Vincent should have, you know, I don't think he knew how dangerous it was, but he knew what was going on. And that's why I think in the scene, when right where they're standing at the door, he goes, you know, he wants me to take her out. And then when, when Jules went, take her out, like yeah. it wasn't that big of a stretch for Jules, yeah. right? Like he he was, he was like, mm, sounds maybe he's had enough of whatever yeah. might or might not take be happening, out, right? Yeah. Yeah, you never know, yeah. And who else? Someone who doesn't know her, yeah. right? Because yeah. he doesn't know her, so. Which Vince almost does take her out, which he doesn't even realize. He almost took her out without trying to take yeah, her out. Right. Fucking God. <laughs> uh, now, do you think that his girl Friday and its dialogue have helped to influence Tarantino's writing of conversations throughout his career since, or at least gave him the touch point to where he's like, I like the way this is written. I like this style of dialogue. Because obviously in the 40s, the way they wrote it and the way he writes it is different. There's not a way to get away with the N-word and motherfucker every three seconds. Like he can so poetically put in, but I think he liked this quick fire back and forth, human-esque like element of talking as opposed to the old standard, everything is for story and exposition as opposed to still being able to do those things without us knowing. Because it is foreshadowing exposition that we learn about Rocky Horror. We need to know about him in order for things to happen. But he's so subtle with how he gives us the information that will come back to be important without it just being like a hammer over the head. You know what I mean? Like, like they always talk about a movie. It's like, I know how to do this. And then also it's like, well, of course this is going to come back that you know how to do this. You know, like, yeah. that gun can only shoot a wolf in the asshole. If the moon is at three quarters. <laughs> and you go, sure enough, a wolf is getting shot in the asshole at some point in this film. Otherwise we don't have this line of dialogue. Yeah. There's no point. What's the five here. finger point death? <laughs> exactly. Like Bill, yeah. And he plays with that too. Like oh, he says absolutely. it. And then we think, we, then we think, no, no one's ever going to learn it because yeah. Pi May dies. And then of course at the end, we're like, oh shit. Of course she knows. <laughs> like it almost, he was like, of course, of course I know of course. it. What are you fucking stupid? <laughs> of course I know. Why wouldn't have talked about it? No. So yeah, I think, um, I think absolutely he's influenced by that. Um, his girl Friday. I love that movie. I'm a big, I'm also a big Howard Hawks fan because of Quentin. Cause when I watched the Charlie Rose interview he was talking about like Howard Hawks is my favorite filmmaker so immediately I went and started watching every Howard Hawks film I could and yeah he's right Howard Hawks is amazing I love him his girl Friday in particular is really good I believe it's like I read somewhere that it's like one of the fastest talking movies it has one of the fastest dialogue in that movie 
And I think I do see some of the flirtatious things going on there, but I think one of the biggest influences is not even in that scene for his girl Friday is the scene between Eric Stoltz and John Travolta before they give the, before they give the shot that back and forth, that's like mm-hmm. comedy and bam, yeah. bam, bam. It's like, I'm not going to give it the shot. You're going to give it the shot. You're going to give the shot. And you're gonna, <laughs> I need a black magic marker. Like that whole scene is almost like a screwball comedy. And I can yeah. totally see yeah. that's, that's where I see the Howard Hawks dialogue is in that scene a little bit in the, in the Mia scene, but for, especially mm-hmm. for that scene, uh, the shot scene, I totally see Howard Hawks influence on that. But again, he uses that influence as a starting point and makes it his own and twists it. And, and so that's what I think what makes him so great. He takes stuff that he loves and influ- that influences him, and then he just turns it into gold. You know, <laughs> He just yes. shits it out, and it's gold. <laughs> and I'll give the detractors a little moment. There is a line that he does borrow yeah. from the movie oh, right. when, he, when she asks, yep. would you roll me one of those? That is a direct... Yep line that does come from mm-hmm. that movie. However, once again, used properly in the right context, in the right spot. So, there you go, you detractors. He stole a line. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> time to turn off the podcast that you're now season three into. It's time to turn it off. You're right. So, do you think there's something to say? Actually, I did. However, you seem like a really nice person, and I, I don't want to offend you. Doesn't sound like the usual mindless, boring, getting to know you chit chat. That sounds like you actually have something to say. Well, well, I do, I do. But you have to promise not to be offended. No, no, no. You can't promise something like that. I have no idea what you're going to ask me. So you can go ahead and ask me what you're going to ask me. And my natural response could be to get offended. Then, through no fault of my own, I would have broken my promise. Let's just forget it. That's an impossibility. Trying to forget anything as intriguing as this would be an exercise in futility. Is that a fact? Besides, isn't it more uh, exciting when you don't have permission? All right, all right. Well, here it goes. Uh, What did you uh, think about what happened to Antoine? Who's Antoine? Tony Rocky Horror. You know him. Fell out of a window. Hmm, hmm. Well, that is one way to say it. Another way to say it would be that he was thrown out. Another way would be was he was thrown out by Marcellus. And yet even another way is to say he was thrown out of a window by Marcellus because of you. Is that a fact? No, no, it's not a fact. It's just what I heard. It's just what I heard. Who told you? They. They talk a lot, don't they? <laughs> they certainly do. They certainly do. Don't be shy, Vincent. What else did they say? Well, I'm not, I'm not shy. Um, did it involve the F word? No, 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 no. I just said that Antoine had given you a foot massage. And? And and nothing. That's it. You heard Marsalis through Tony Rocky Hard at a four-story window for giving me a foot massage? Mm-hmm. Can you believe that? <laughs> well, I mean, at the time I was told it sounded reasonable. Marsalis throwing Tony out of a four-story window massaging my feet seem reasonable? No, it seemed excessive, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. I mean, I understand that Marcellus is very, very protective of you. A husband being protective of his wife is one thing. A husband almost killing another man for touching his wife's feet is something else. But did it happen? Only thing Antoine ever touched in mine was my hand when he shook it. At my wedding. Really? 
truth is, nobody knows why Marsalis threw Tony out of that four-story window except Marsalis and Tony. When you little scamps get together, you're worse than a sewing circle. Our fourth movie. Now, this is where we're going to start to get into the territory, the waters, with which mm. those who do not like Tarantino get frothy, <laughs> get excited, <laughs> wrap themselves up in plastic leather and a zipper mask and get real, real intense. But we're starting with Eight and a Half from 1963. Now, in Eight and a Half, Fellini choreographed a surreal dreamlike dance in an aristocrat ballroom featuring the woman and protagonist Guido Anselmi's life gliding wordlessly to music. The scene stands out for its ethereal atmosphere and visually striking tableaus. Tarantino sought to capture a similar fanciful mood from Mia and Vincent's winning twist performance. Jackrabbit Slims transforms through nostalgic neon lighting and the soaring guitars of Chuck Berry's You Never Can Tell into a romantic fever dream. The camera floats around with Mia and Vincent, almost trance-like as they gyrate, isolating them in their own world. Vincent was initially reluctant to dance, but soon finds himself caught up in the moment like Guido enthralled by the woman enveloping him. The smooth camera movements, perfectly synced dancing, and transportive power of music all directly channel Fellini's flair. The scene becomes a reverie where the awkward gangster and Trothworth lose themselves, exactly a distinctive tone and mood Tarantino borrowed from Eight and a Half to make the sequence so mesmerizing. Echoes of Nino Rota's score even underscore the contest's final moments. Tarantino fused his pulpy retro style with Fellini's cinematic language to craft an indelible romantic interlude. In my opinion, what separates the two scenes from one another is John Travolta. For those of us who saw this film when it first came out, knew of Travolta from Greece, Saturday Night Fever, and Urban Cowboy. Roles that showcase his dancing prowess. Now, I'd be lying if when this dance scene was about to start, I said I wasn't as apprehensive about Travolta dancing in yet another film as Vincent was at being forced into a twist contest. Right. Maybe it's Vincent's transformation from reluctant dancer to willing participant, or Travolta's perfectly choreographed sequence, or the use of Chuck Berry's song instead of the standard Chubby Checker twist song that elevated the scene from an innocuous dance scene to an iconic cinematic moment on par with Fellini's, if not more memorable. Whatever the case, the Jack Rabbit Slims twist contest may have been conceived from Fellini's moment in Eight and a Half, but in my opinion, it stands on its own as one of the most iconic dance moments in film history. Now, Mr. Kennedy, what are your feelings on this iconic scene? And is it homage that stands on its own, or is it a blatant ripoff, as all the detractors love to point out that this is the moment? <laughs> you know, and I'm biased, you know, but no, it's, it's, it's homage. Um, so Eight and a Half, I've, of course, seen that, too, um, as a film graduate. It's it's an awesome movie, fantastic. But, yeah, that scene, I, I, I rewatched that that moment, and it is, especially the actress in, in Eight and a Half, very, like, me, Uma Thurman's doing, like, the, almost the same movement. Mm -hmm. is that so i i mean i wonder i mean she had to have seen that or quentin like mm -hmm. showed that oh, well travolta's the one who did choreograph it so obviously travolta oh my goodness, yeah a, a dancer I, dancer extraordinaire right i mean he's like the fred fred astaire of our time that people don't really realize you know what i mean like if musicals <laughs> yeah, yeah. were more prevalent john travolta's the guy because yeah. he was just a dancing fucking yeah. fool in the 70s yeah yeah he even did a dance scene in look who's talking to which was, yes, which is a terrible movie. <laughs> but, so close to being Oscar worthy, though. It was this this close. <laughs> no, um, but yeah. So I think, um, yeah, I think that he probably saw that and was like, "Let's do the eight and a half. But I know too. I also read that um, he was also influenced. Quentin was influenced by Band of Outsiders. The yep, Band of Parta. Yeah, 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 which is where he gets his name right. for his original. Right, right, right. But I think since dropped it, but that was where we got it from. Right, right, right. But he, but he, I know in that movie that now i haven't seen that but i saw the clip where they just start dancing in the cafe mm -hmm. or whatever 
But I would say the movement and stuff is more like the eight and a half, the way they dance, mm-hmm. dance and stuff to each other. Not necessarily Travolta's dancing, but definitely Uma Thurman's dancing is almost verbatim, like how she moves and stuff mm-hmm. for it. But I'm sure that's, again, that's an homage. You throw that in there. You're just, it's, you're showing an homage. It's a love letter. It's, it's, that's what he is. He is a film fan. He is just doing a love letter for things. And because that he acknowledges it, that's why it's mm-hmm. ripping it off. If, if you would, Take something and then show it. I'm like, this is what I did. You're ripping it off because you are acknowledging yeah. mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. are influenced by it. You said, this is something I created and I came up with it by myself. To me, that, that's, when, that's when I would say that you're ripping it off. And I think what people should also understand is, in the script, this is how, as a writer, how do we get these two characters who are now dangerously, and we, and we want this. The part, of the part of the story is we want the, the boss's wife. The temptation of the boss's wife, the danger of that. That's in thousands of pulp stories, and he even talks about that. He wanted to take that story. How do we get them to be close? A lot of times where someone becomes close is sometimes through a traumatic event they've gone through. So like, you know, like that the Helsinki uh, syndrome where if myself and another female were trapped in a desert island for a long time, we would start to create a bond because of that, what they call trauma bonding. We'd be trauma bonded together from this incident, and we might grow closer together because of that. But otherwise, we wouldn't have had that moment together. So how do we take these two characters and not do what everyone else has done? What is the other way we can make them close? Well, dancing. Just like Travolta talked earlier. Fumsas, we pretend they're not something sensual, but they are. Dancing together with another person is something sensual. Dancing is another way of checking out each other's moves or vertically for later horizontally. <laughs> All right? That's just what it is. Right, right, right. It's just what it is. If not, then why was a lot of dancers very sexual? Yeah. It's the peacock thing, right? Uh-huh. It's like you're showing up your sexual prowess uh-huh. fully clothed. So how else do we do that? We force him to have to dance because she's the boss's wife and you have to do what she says under fear of repercussions from Marcellus. So we put them together. We do this dance. The next thing you know... <laughs> drinks, music, and he's going to the bathroom to jerk you off to save himself from being killed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but without them dancing, it doesn't work. So he sees a movie that inspired him, eight and a half. I want my scene to replicate something like that. So I they get the sense. So we get the fact that they are both in a moment together. When when I first saw it, I was apprehensive, like I said, because I knew Travolta from a dancer. And I was like, oh, really? Tarantino's making him dance? But it's amazing how he was just as apprehensive in the film to do. He's like, no, no, no. Like, almost like, no. Yeah. I'm, yeah. you know, like, and it felt real. It was like, no, no, I, I don't want to dance. I get it. No, I don't want to dance. And then it just, it was great because we were all like on the same page. And then you're kind of like, God damn, he is good. You know what I mean? You're kind of like, it worked. Yeah. Without the dance, the next part doesn't happen because they've won. They've got excited. Some people say they stole the trophy. <laughs> whatever. I love fan theories. Whatever you want. They stole the trophy. I don't care. <laughs> Who's telling them no? Right? Who's telling them no? And um, they, they, they come home, and it's because of this moment they have now gotten to that point of uncomfortable silence. It's like he says, I don't know if we're there yet, because like he says it in the book. Bu- yeah. And then they get there. And she's like, like, I need more drinks. Like, she's, like you said, she's ready for this. Like, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> she's like, I'm, I'm taking him home. Marcel's is up doing whatever he's doing. He's not giving me my needs. I love the house I'm in, but I'm going to get what I need to get. And I like this guy. He's my kind of jib. He's the cut of my jib. So I just need a little more alcohol lubricant to loosen up. And uh, Vincent goes in and says, I, nope, I got to take care of something real yeah, quick. Right. Because, uh, <laughs> but, and to, and to, to go back what you said about uh, the dance scene, 
I think the reason also why the scene watching Travolta that works is because of where he was at his point in his career. Yes. You're watching it. You're like, at, at this point, he's kind of a has-been. And then yes. when he starts, because before that, you're still watching the movie. And I'm like, wow, Travolta's really good. But then when he yeah. comes in and he does that dancing, you're like, there's Travolta. He is back. Yes. And that was, the, to me, that's the iconic moment of Travolta's career is that dancing is like, that's that, that he's back now. And then he stayed back, like through the nineties, you know, and and through most of the two thousands, he was he was back. Yeah, and then then he did that Scientology movie. Oh right, really... the Battlefield. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, he was still like doing stuff. Like, yeah. He was still, you know... yeah. No, agreed. He was on fire. Yeah. Because then he would go on to be Chili Palmer in uh, Get Shorty. Get Shorty face. Another phenomenal. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. Oh yeah. Face. Exactly. <laughs> now it's funny because you said that, but where does? This Rankin Travolta's famous dance scenes because he dances in Greece, mm. Saturday Night yeah. La- or Saturday Night Fever. He dances in Urban Cowboy, and then he doesn't dance through the whole film, but this one moment. Mm. I mean, it's an it is one of the more iconic moments of a film filled with them. Yeah. But you see it on everything. You see, I mean, that dance, the, the two of them standing together is a silhouette on a ton of uh, memorabilia for this for this film. Yeah, my fa- I I think my fa- my favorite dancing is probably in Saturday Night Fever, and it's the scene when. You should be dancing comes on and he, the dent, dent, dent. And then his friends are like, Oh, here he goes. And then he gets out there and he does that thing. And that, that's probably the best dance for me. The best trouble to dancing is in that. But then I would, I would probably put Pulp Fiction close second. So, um, after that, what do you think is the more memorable one though? What do you think is the that's one that's question. in the lexicon? You know what I mean? In the zeitgeist, what would people go to wrote the dancing? What would they say? Greece? Would they say urban cowboy? Would they say Saturday Night Fever? Or would they go, that scene of Pulp Fiction. You know what I mean? Like, where did this elevate? I guess, obviously, it depends who you're talking to, but I guess the most memorable, yeah, when I'm thinking, when you say Travolta dancing, yeah, I'm going to, the Pulp Fiction dancing is going to come in my head. But I, as a technicality, that's why I was talking about the Saturday Night Fever. No, 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 yeah, yeah, no, I agree, yeah. But yeah, yeah, most memorable when I'm remembering it. But though I know some people will probably, depending on what their age is, might go to Saturday True. Night Fever because of the disco and you're thinking of him in the suit doing his yeah. little, you know, pointing up, you know. Thing, that could be iconic too. So that's that's a tricky question. It's I would say it's between Saturday Night Fever and and Pulp Fiction. My personal favorite's always been Grease Lightning. From yeah. Greece. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. And, yeah. Oh, Grease Lightning. <laughs> it's, just, it's not a very great dance number, but it's just a great country <laughs> oh, song. Yeah, it's it's probably more yeah, yeah. for me. It's more of the singing than it is the dancing. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, now the moment you've all been waiting for. So world famous Jack Rabbit Slim's Twist Contest. <laughs> One lucky couple will win this handsome trophy that Marilyn here is holding. Now, who will be our first contestants? Right here. Want to dance? No, 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 no. I do believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. Now I want to dance. I want to win. I want that trophy. It's a dance good. All right. Now let's meet our first contestants here this evening. Young lady, what is your name? Mrs. Mia Wallace. And uh, how about your fellow here? Lucy Vega. All right, let's see what you can do. Take it away. Now, a lesser known short film that, unbeknownst to some, Tarantino helped produce into a full-length feature two years after Pulp Fiction came out, so five years down the road, 
And it didn't get as great reviews as the original short. So, you know, sometimes things are just good in bite-sized uh, bits and not full-length. But Curdled from 1991. A Tarantino took inspiration for a sharply dressed cleaner character, Winston fucking Wolf, played <laughs> by the amazing Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction from this 1991 short horror film entitled Curdled. Curdled centers on a young woman named Gabriella, played by Angela Jones, who is obsessed with gory crime scenes and eventually gets hired to clean them up. This short directly influenced Tarantino to conceive of the Winston Wolf character, a nondescript man in a tuxedo summoned by gangsters after an assassination to expertly clean the messy scene. In both Curdled and Pulp Fiction, the wolf-like cleaners have an intricate, systematic approach to violently scrubbing away blood and viscera, destroying evidence with chemicals and tools. Their methods reveal a strange professional pride in being the best cleaners in the business. Winston even notes his appreciation for good old-fashioned American know-how. Now, from Gabriella's creepy, methodical process to her dark confidence dealing with corpses, Curdled allowed Tarantino to push Pulp Fiction's archetype into horror territory with this atypical cleaner character. QT cast Keitel in an attempt to capture Gabriella's complex attitude towards violence and death, unfazed, workmanlike, and even satisfied. Winston Wolf became a memorable, efficient fixer tailored to Tarantino's stylized crime universe. Quinton was so impressed with Angela Jones' performance in the short film that he cast her in Pulp Fiction as the sultry cab driver, obsessed, ironically, with what it's like to kill a person, Esmeralda Villalobos. A hallmark of this in every Tarantino film is the amazing side characters like the wolf and Esmeralda that grace the screen. Both Harvey and Angela made the most of their time on screen and created rich, memorable characters. Now, Mr. Kennedy, again, I think this is homage. I don't think anything's ripped off because Point of No Return is a very similar they have a very similar character in there from Point of No Return, uh, played by... Jean um, Reno. Jean Reno. Yeah, Jean Reno. He plays a cleaner as well. So this, this is not the first person to play cleaner. And we've had a great TV series that was over in England, I think, uh, with the gentleman who uh, plays the farmer in Inglorious Bastards. There was like a yeah. season one or season two. I can't think of the name. It may have been called Clean or something. It was a pretty good show too. These guys were cleaning service. They end up getting hired for this thing. They didn't want to. It was a whole big thing that goes on in there. It was a pretty decent series, but it never seemed to go after season one. Like they never picked up the second season, which I really would like to have seen out concluded. Yeah. So the cleaner thing is not original and it's not brand new, but this movie Curdled obviously brought it to the forefront and it's cool that it's a female as opposed to a male, which is what we would normally think. And I love Miss Gabriella. In this film, she is amazing as a cab driver. So I'll skip the, is it homage at this thing? <laughs> but one of the things that I don't think Tarantino gets enough credit for, and maybe because we all get sucked into, is his amazing side characters. We have great leads, and a lot of these leads get opportunities to resurrect their careers, and we go gaga over them. But he also gets amazing actors who don't need the credit to do side stuff, or even people we've never heard of coming to side one of my favorites is from Kill Bill, <laughs> Kill Bill 2, and that's fucking Bud's <laughs> strip joint boss. Oh. It's calendar time. It's calendar time for Buddy. He's amazing. The amazing Larry Michael Bishop, Parks. Right? Yeah, yeah, and the amazing Michael Parks playing um, our, our Texas Ranger. He's amazing in these films. Like, There's so many great moments. Mm. What is it about his ability to take these side characters... And make them so memorable. Like you said, it's the writing that brings forth, again, Christopher Walken again, in the role of Vincenzo Cacati. And also, we got Dennis Hopper as the father. And then, you, like you said, we've got the great Drexel Spivey character. Oh. Like, and they're on screen, what, 10, 15 minutes, maybe at the most? Maybe. But they <laughs> echo 
throughout the rest of the film and throughout his his catalog yeah. of films. Yeah, no, I love I love all the side characters. That's kind of why I like a lot of his movies, like True Romance too. I love Tom Sizemore and Chris Penn. They're so great as nickels and dimes in that movie. Love them. They're talking oh. to Bronson Pinchot, who's also awesome in that movie too. Bronson mm. Pinchot is. I don't think he gets enough credit for that movie, but he's no. when he's crying in the elevator, and and Tom Sizemore's just like, I fucking love this guy, Clarence. He's crazy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that stuff that cracks me up. No, yeah, Angela Jones. Suck his dick. Yeah, right. Oh, who the fuck is Dick? (laughs) Angela Jones. Angela Jones. Yeah, she's really good in this. Now, I haven't seen the curdled short film. It's hard to find. I was trying to look for it. Yes, it is. Very hard. Um, I remember. So I used to work at Hollywood Video back in the '90s, and we had the curdled. I never did get to watch it, but the curdled thing. But I I looked up on it, and I feel like that the Angela character or Angela Jones's character in as the as the cab driver wouldn't be the way she was if he didn't see Curdle, obviously. Agreed. Agreed. It's, it's even a little nod to her character. Right, exactly. It's almost like, what if she didn't come from Columbia and see a murder in right. 1973 and go to Miami be a cleaner? What if she came from Columbia and was interested in murder and ended up being a cab driver in L.A.? You know what I mean? It's like it's a right. it's like a different path choice. Like, it's the same right. character-esque, but, you know, because she's like, what is it like to kill a man? You right. know, it's just And again, so he, he takes the cleaner character, right? Uh, and But if you see like the cleaner character especially like in la femme nikita you know with john mm-hmm. he's not funny like winston you know like winston is, it's it, so he takes the cleaner thing and he turned it into something else he turned it into he made it com- uh comical you know yeah well not like that he's managerial right because right. you think he's gonna clean he's like no 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 you blew off the fucking head i'll tell you how this is gonna get cleaned you're gonna do the fucking work and i'll help yeah, yeah, you yeah. get rid of this body but you're doing the fucking work. I'm going to tuxedo. Funny. A friend of mine was yeah. always just like, yeah, Winston, he doesn't even fucking do anything. He just comes up and he's like, nope. uh, just do that. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's like, Drink some wow, coffee, sprays him down with some water, right. and, and buy some furniture. <laughs> and, and, and it's funny because like, then at the end, they're both like, hey, we, wow, you did amazing work. And I'm like, you fucking didn't do anything. <laughs> but but that's mm-hmm. so great about it. And, and that's what's funny about it. So he's like this little magical like movie character. Like it doesn't even seem like a real person. <laughs> he's just like a like a fairy godmother almost. Just Shows up with his little pixie dust and boop makes everything go away. No, <laughs> be, yeah, he could be he could be singing. Takes a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. He could be Mary exactly. Poppins for all we know. <laughs> it's it's Mary Poppins' Godfather. But no, yeah. So no, I I I would like to see Curled at some point. So and and the short film would be great to see because it's it's really like I said it's hard to find. So but yeah, Angela Jones is terrific in that. And as, as side characters go, in fact, it was like they had a, a connection, you know. And then he comes in and he has a completely different connection with his with his girlfriend which is weird like he totally changes his tune it's almost like that is the ideal person that butch would want to be with but then he ends up with her (laughs) with with the other one many have said that you're not the first (laughs) however i do think like like at first he's like scared to death to get the fuck out of yeah yeah yeah. you know and then he's almost kind of like why are you asking me these weird questions like he's almost like suspicious like did i get in the wrong cab kind of thing you know like like it's oh shit am i am i in trouble here and then He'll basically tell her whatever she needs to know so he can get the fuck out of there. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously he's going to be a little flirtatious with her and give her sex some money because he knows if she goes and spills the beans yeah. right now, he's fucking dead and yeah. she can keep his money. Yeah. So that's, I think he kind of is like, you know, I'm going to give her what she needs. Here's what she needs. A little, hey, you're cute. <laughs> Here's some money. How do you, you know, I, I killed a man. Congratulations. <laughs> All right. You can get on your way. Three, three well-dressed, lightly Those toasted Mexicans. Mexicans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is it like to keep that? <laughs> hey, Lisa. What? You were in that fight. The fight on the radio. You're the fighter? I will give you that idea. No, come on. You're him. 
I know you're him. Tell me you're him. You killed the other boxing man. He's dead? The radio said he was dead. Sorry about that, Floyd. What does it feel like? What's what it feel like? Killing a man. Beating another man to date with your bare hands. Are you a weirdo? No. He's a subject I have not interested in. You are the first person I've ever met who has killed somebody. So? What does it feel like to kill a man? I'll tell you what. Give me one of the cigarettes you got up there and I'll tell you all about it. Until you told me he was dead. Now that I know he's dead, you wanna know how I feel about it? I don't feel the least bit bad about it. And our final film of this episode is from 1955. It is Kiss Me Deadly. Now, those of you who have followed this show religiously, I thank you, but I covered this last season with Mr. Cohen when we did the Under the Influence episode on Pulp Fiction. But I feel that since this film has maybe the most significant reference from a film in Pulp Fiction, it required some more discussion. For those who don't know, Quentin Tarantino created the mysterious glowing briefcase and its unseen contents in Pulp Fiction as a direct tribute to the notorious Pandora's box moment from the 1955 noir classic Kiss Me Deadly. In Kiss Me Deadly, a box discovered in a beach house that emits an intense glow when opened, eventually exploding into flames after characters obsessed over learning what's inside. The apocalyptic ending seals its status as a metaphorical Pandora's box, holding secrets never meant for mortal mind. However, the content of said box is stolen plutonium from the Manhattan Project. So, when they looked at it, they got fucking melted by <laughs> plutonium. <laughs> Just so you know. Now, Tarantino crafted the Pulp Fiction briefcase as both a direct aesthetic homage to Kiss Me Deadly's conspicuous artifact and a spiritual successor carrying its same symbolic weight. The handcuffed briefcase channels the earlier film's sense of dangerous covetousness and awe. Its sublime glow beguiles Vincent and Jules, much as the beach container captivated Kiss Me Deadly's Ralph Meeker with content suggesting untold value or calamity to those foolish enough to pry further. However, Tarantino took it a step further by never showing more than the case's glow, summoning that same noir apocalyptic foreboding which fascinated him from Kiss Me Deadly, while putting the contents of the briefcase firmly in the minds of the audience to create what valued treasure 
was contained within. The briefcase becomes Pulp Fiction's own unconsciously desired Deathly Pandora's box, resurrected from the past, and one of the most iconic MacGuffins in the history of cinema. As I stated earlier, Tarantino isn't the only director to reference moments from earlier films into their own. In fact, Mr. Spielberg and Lucas reference the same scene in the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. When the Nazis open the Ark and a bright golden light washes over them right before evil spirits melt their fucking faces off. So, Mr. Kennedy, yeah. what is the obsession, yeah. for lack of a better term, of haters to continue to shit on directors for referencing awesome moments from their own films while also just passing off other ones? And has there been a more iconic MacGuffin in cinema since Marcellus Wallace's briefcase? I think it has something to do, again, with Tarantino's personality. I think it's because he's so right out there and he's like and talking and showing that he loves movies. And I think, honestly, some people find that annoying. And I think that they want to put him in his place and be like, well, you're a ripoff artist. I really <laughs> well, think that's luck. what it is. I think the people <laughs> that don't like Tarantino don't like his personality. And and I get it. It could be a divisive personality because he's 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 a motor mouth. He talks a lot. I'm kind of the same way. I'm like, when I talk about movies, when I'm when I get on about movies, I'm like, oh. Yeah, it's hard when you're passionate, it's hard not to yeah. come unhinged to tell. Right. Yeah, no, so I think that's really what it is. And and to go back, uh kind of a neat little thing that happened so my brother used to work at kstp channel 5 local news mm. and back when kill bill volume 2 was coming out um the local critic there the the media guy there rusty gatenby was like hey i'm gonna interview quentin is there something i should ask him and my brother's like uh are you gonna ask him this this and this and then he's like oh i don't know and then so i get a call at five in the morning <laughs> and, and i get a call at the five in the morning and he goes so I've just been asked, I'm going to be interviewing Quentin over a satellite interview. And I'm like, what? So my brother interviewed Quentin Tarantino and he was like, what should I ask him? So I gave him questions to ask. But anyways, I asked him like, what was it like interviewing him? And he was like, actually, it was a lot like talking to you. Because <laughs> you just talk a lot and just keep going. But, but anyways, yeah, so we asked him like questions about like, you were going to be Pi May. Why didn't you, why weren't you Pi May? And um, why didn't you cast Warren Beatty? Stuff like that. Anyways, but I think it's the personality. I think it's the personality that why people don't, why people don't uh, like him. And, and that, that's why I think that they attack him because he's so out there and just so like, this is me and he's unapologetic about it. And me, that's why I love him. So <laughs> agreed, you know, yep. and, but I get it that it could be divisive and, and, uh, and uh, you know, grain is not everyone's cup of tea. I get it. Now th this movie I never seen it before. I watched it last night for the first time. It was okay, good. A yeah, gut punch of a movie. Hold yeah, shit. yeah. It's it's a interesting I film mean, from I've the fifties. Plenty too. of film noir. I was not expecting this. Like it starts off right away yeah. with young Cloris Leachman. I was like, holy, <laughs> yes. he's awesome in it. And yes, and shows up. But yeah, it was a gut punch of a movie. And I absolutely yeah, he saw this movie and was just even not just the briefcase, but just just the energy of of yeah. the Pulp Fiction type material. Mm -hmm. This film kind of has that and definitely with the butch character too a little like yes hammer, for sure for sure like the main character but yeah obviously he saw that and he's like well i have to put something with a briefcase in it but again he takes it he didn't make it plutonium he didn't make it people no he, just, he didn't even tell you what it is no, no no he didn't he just took that idea and threw it in the movie he's making it his own he's yeah. just taking ideas he's not ripping things off It'd be one thing if it was plutonium and it was starting, you know, hitting people's head. But it's not. <laughs> He's doing something else. He's making it where you have to figure out what it is. He's not giving mm -hmm. the answers. But yeah, I definitely think this is a really great homage to uh, to the movie. And and if you haven't seen it, check check it out because this is a yes. It's a cool movie. 
And I mean, since you're a time machine yeah. person, I, I need to watch. Could you could you maybe tell the detractors at what year did Raiders of the Lost Ark come out, and what year did Pulp Fiction come out, and who stole it first? If we're going to say someone stole it's it, eighty one and ninety four. Okay, so there, you there go. we go. Okay, so there you go. Thirteen years. So Lucas, Lucas, and Spielberg do it. Yeah. Fucking genius. <laughs> Tarantino does it. Fucking hat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And funny thing yeah. is, is technically Lucas and Spielberg stole it more. Because, you know, when she opens the box at the end of the movie, the plutonium basically goes active yeah, yeah. and burns the house down and kills everyone inside. And it's similar to what happens when they open it. It's the glow and then all of a sudden it releases whatever and right. kills all the Nazis right, right, right. and melts their face. It's a literally direct steal. Yeah. When, when Vincent opens it, he doesn't start to melt. No. You know? Like, it would have been cool, though, if, if it happened like that. Like, all of a sudden, Jules is like, opens the case and pumpkin melts. He's like, ah. <laughs> or, his, or his afro goes on fire or something. Exactly. Oh, man. But, no, it's a, it's probably, and I, I was trying to think about when I, asked you, when I wanted to ask you the question. I can't think, and again, I, I'm trying not to, you know, I'm trying to, you know, remove myself from the fact I'm a Tarantino fan. I do like other movies. I love film. So all of you out there just think I only watch Tarantino. <laughs> That's nine, technically 10 films, 12 if you want to go to the whole universe. Yeah. It's not a lot of movies to watch. You know what I mean? You can only watch those so many yeah. times. But I can't think of another MacGuffin that has been more debated, more talked about, and more memorable than the briefcase from Pulp Fiction. I think you're right. And we're, and we're, we're, we're on 30 years almost yeah. in October of 2024. It'll be 30 years since it came out. And I really sat there and thought about it. Like, Seven has the box, but we all know it's in the box. Yeah. Yeah, we know it's in the box. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a MacGuffin, but it's not a MacGuffin. We know now what's in the box. We, we yeah. know. John Doe even tells him. He just told you. You know, we all know what's in the box. So that doesn't work. And then, like, I just, you know, I mean, even at the end of Fight Club, we know we figure out what's going on between Ed Norton and Brad Pitt's character. Uh, one of my favorite movies also is The Usual Suspects. We find out the end. You know, we learn all of these things. Even in the twists of M. Night Shyamalan, we learn the answers. So I can't think of. So that's why I give it to you, the time machine guy. Yeah. Can you think of one even before it that was that we just don't know? You know, because maybe the biggest one would have been in Star Wars Empire Strikes Back before Vader confirms that he's his dad. There was illusions there, right? And, you know, but they're all answered. All these things get answered. So you wait three years to find out, but they get answered. There is no answer for this. It's that's it. Done. Yeah. Sealed shut. No, I, I I agree. I don't think there is another movie that has done this like, uh, to this degree, where you're just like people are constantly debating what's in it. You don't know. Mm -hmm. I love. I and and it's divisive. Some people like them. Some people don't. I love ambiguous films. I love ambiguous endings. Oh, me too. Uh, John mm -hmm. John Carpenter is one of my favorite filmmakers. I don't think. I think. 85% of his movies, I think 85% of his movies have ambiguous endings. All of them. Like they even Big Trouble in Little China is an ambiguous ending. You know, <laughs> everything's an ambiguous in, in his movies. And that's what I love about those movies. I love, I love that you can have to figure it out for yourself. Uh, and I think that's great. And uh, so yeah, I, I don't think any other MacGuffin has been like this. And again, that's not a I mean it's a Tarantino podcast, so of course I'm gonna highlight it, but yeah. I really did rack my brain yeah. leading up to us recording. To think about what other movies have I seen that I'm still like, what the fuck happened there? What was that? And I can't think of one that has lasted or is as powerful or in the conscious mind of people all these years later. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> so take that, detractors. Yeah. <laughs> we know what's in Kiss Me Deadly's box. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> we know what's in the end of the, we know what's in the arc. Right, right, right. So, yeah, yeah, copy paste. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> You, Lock and Seagull, you know why we're here? Why don't you tell my man Vince here where you got your shit here at? 
It's over there. It's I don't there. remember asking you a goddamn thing. You were saying? It's in the cupboard. No, no, the one by your knees. I really appreciate you stopping in. Oh, thanks for having we let me. You go. It was so much fun. Yeah. I have three questions for the road for All you. All right, here we go. And now, here's three for the road. What kind of impact do you feel this film has had on the movie industry since it debuted nearly 30 years ago? Obviously, um, it blew up the independent film scene in the 90s. It was it made people make movies. It was because uh, this came out the same year that Clerks did. And I think Clerks and Pulp Fiction really opened the whole avenue for independent cinema. And in fact, like right after that in Minneapolis, um, we had one independent theater, the Uptown Theater, where they would show art house films. The year after Pulp Fiction came out, we opened up The Lagoon, which had five screens, and it was all dedicated to independent films. So we got more independent movies. They were distributed more. Mm -hmm. Miramax, you know, really helped. I mean, Weinstein piece of shit, but... He, yeah, we 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 discussed that. You know, the wines are just shitty, but they did have a place oh, that did help people so much with with the independent. They, they distributed so many great independent cinema, and it did open the avenue for like Paul Thomas Anderson and there, and even lesser uh, people like Greg Arach mm -hmm. and you know the Doom Generation that came out like a year later. And just there's so I remember just any independent movie that came out. After Pulp Fiction, I went to go see at the Lagoon Cinema and and uh, and just the way films were made. And obviously things were homage and uh, ripped off like there was, yeah, yeah. you know, obviously Boondock Saints. And you're probably going to talk about that. Stuff. Yeah. But oh, we did. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I don't know how we stand on that, but I I really don't like Boondock Saints. I don't like it. Uh, it's to me. It's, it does not hold up well. Well, to me, it's someone saw Pulp Fiction and liked it for all yep. the wrong reasons. Oh, it's violence <laughs> and swearing. Woo. It's just like, but Boondock Saints is the perfect film to say to people yeah. this is the difference from copy and paste and someone who knows what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, I think that's so. copy paste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is homage right. reference and a strong film knowledge. Absolutely, absolutely. But I think one that does it kind of what, um, what did it pretty good was Go. If you ever saw Doug Lyman's, yeah, oh, yeah, Go, like, yeah, Go's like a great that film. one, I think, does kind of like the, the three stories and then Lana Lander. That was is like a. I call it like the the teenage Pulp Fiction was almost like what it was because it was like the rave scene was just you know yep. in the in the late nineties, but yeah no I think that really opened up the independent cinema for sure and we got great cinema too like it was I don't want people to think who aren't of this generation that it was just copy paste everyone trying to be Tarantino no, no. it allowed for so many even your big storyteller started telling bigger mm -hmm. darker stories like I always tell people if you watch Goodfellas in nineteen ninety. Mm -hmm. And then the violence level that Scorsese works with in Casino in, what, 95? Yeah. 
Tarantino helped reopen <laughs> that door that Kubrick opened in the 70s yeah. to them. Like, it got closed a bit in the 80s. Yeah. But you had to have big guns and all these explosions, but not a lot of death and blood. Yeah. And the violence had to be more cartoonish. This really opens the door. Yeah. Because, I mean, we're popping eyeballs. Like, there's a whole... <laughs> Scorsese says, I'm playing in this sandbox now. And, you know, all those movies of the 90s really... Violence wasn't just for violence sake. It was a storytelling technique that really amped up what we were seeing on screen. Like the violence was more visceral and real and it made the stories feel more visceral yeah. and real as opposed to like the 80s. Were like, get to the chop. Now, I love the movies of the 80s. <laughs> Fan of the action. Yeah. But you never once felt that your hero was in trouble. No. Right. But now in these films, you were like, I don't know if they'll make the credits. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. It changed the landscape of film. Now, in your opinion, what has been Pulp Fiction's most enduring impact on pop culture? Yeah, it's that's crazy because there's just so much stuff. Like, I, it's almost like surf music has been married, not just the you know, just the addiction mm-hmm. song, but just been married to Pulp Fiction. When you think of the surf rock, <laughs> people are dressed in like you know uh, suits and stuff like that with slick back hair. But there was so much, like I said, I, I mentioned Spy Hard. There's all these homages and stuff in pop culture. And they would show up like in the Simpsons and they would be like yes. everything like family guy, robot chicken. They would uh, do all these different homages. So it was just everywhere. But the thing is though, it was, it was more of just on the surface though. It wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. the deep characterizations. It's just kind of the fun, cool hit vibe is what when people think of Pulp Fiction, Oh, it's hip. It's cool. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's way yeah. more than that, but that yes. kind of on surface is what people would think of, you know, it'd be like, Oh, it's hip. It's cool. And people would kind of dress, start dressing like that in, in you know, wear the suits. The, uh, I had uh, friends that would dress like Uma Thurman as Mia, like the way that she dressed, you know, with the, with the white shirt, you know, and the black pants. And yeah, I, I it definitely had, uh, just a, a phenomenon and, I, I am glad to say that I'm kind of part of that because what happened to me in about 18 years ago, I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Oh. Yeah, I went to New York and I filmed it, but I only went on it because because I'm like, I don't know anything about this stuff, but they were holding auditions in Minneapolis and it was for a movie week for just movie questions. Oh. So I went on and it was all movie questions and Pulp Fiction won me $25,000. Wow. That was my $25,000 question. What, what was the question? I'm going to tell you, and it's a $100 question. It's not $25,000. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? It's What's the name of the restaurant that they go to? And I'm like, that was $25,000. So I got that for $25,000. And if you watch the show, I'm going, as soon as they, in Pulp Fiction, I went like this. I went like, like that. I'm like, I knew I was going to get it. <laughs> and I struggled before because the, the $16,000 question, which I should have gotten, but I, I I ended up calling a friend and uh, he told me the wrong answer and I went against him and I got it. But it was uh, in Hitchcock. What movie was was uh, that Bernard Herrmann composed just strings for? And the answer is Psycho. But I was between Vertigo and Psycho. And my mm. friend, I called my friend. He told me Vertigo. <laughs> and then I just went, ah, Psycho final answer. And I got it. And then I went on. And then the next question was the Pulp Fiction one. I was like, yes. So, yeah, so I got 25000 because of Pulp Fiction. So, there you go. Nice. <laughs> and you met Regis Philbin. No, it was, uh, it was Meredith. It was oh, Meredith. oh we, well, we 2005. Down. 2005, yeah. So, I was 29. But, yeah, again, pulp culture. It was it was on a game show. Yes. So, it was, it, it was, it was kind of everywhere. And I still think it is because there's still, like, memes of, like, you know. Travolta, oh, my God, yes. Like, Travolta looking, you know, like, yeah. going back and forth, you know, in, in the in uh, Mia's house, you know, so it's, it's just everywhere. And it's just the visual style and the music, I think is what mm-hmm. had the most impact on the pop culture, Agreed. like the fashion sense 
and and just the cool vibe. Because when you think of Pulp Fiction, you're cool. You're cool. It'd be like three little Fonzies. Cool. Three little Fonzies. <laughs> and I, I've said, I said in the last episode, I don't think there's been as big a pop culture phenomenon since Star Wars. I feel like Star Wars is where pop culture really mm-hmm. gets its push. Where Geek culture becomes popular. And then Pulp Fiction is like the next level. Like it starts to push things like the music. And those are two of my favorite things ever. uh, But they just happen to be synergetic. And maybe that's why they're two of my favorite things ever. It's because how impactful they were on each culture, you know, of films. And finally, this is always a tough question. As my buddy Frank says, where does this film rank for you in Tarantino's filmography? One. (laughs) <laughs> it's not hard for me. It's, <laughs> it's number one. So I don't think I've talked about it too much, but yeah, Tarantino is my favorite filmmaker as well. And it wasn't until like later on because, you know, when Pulp Fiction came out, he made two movies. So I, I didn't say he was my favorite filmmaker. At that point, uh, it was the Coen brothers for me. They were, they were my favorite for the longest time. That's not a far stretch between to like both those. Yeah. I would be very surprised if someone's a Tarantino fan and not a Coen Brothers fan yeah. because they're cut from a, a similar cloth, but just a different side of that cloth. Like they both have amazing dark comedy, yeah. Yeah. violence, great character development, but they're just different people. Yeah. But they walk a very unique line that's exciting. They do, and they do, and and, and so I uh, that uh, Hudsucker Proxy came out the same year, and I discovered Hudsucker Proxy. That's not, that's the movie that got me into the Coens was Hudsucker, and I went back and then watched Martin Fink and Miller's Crossing. And that it totally blew me away, but but yeah, I would say yeah, Pulp Fiction for me was was the number one, and then uh, and then he's my favorite filmmaker. But yeah, it's hard to it's hard to like rank them as well. My my I I I want to answer a question that you always ask other people, but I want to say my most underrated one for me is Hateful Eight. Oh yeah, I think Hateful Eight is most underrated. It's in my top. So good. Probably my it's top so three. good. It's probably my top. Three. Me too. It's, so, it's in my top three. It's, so, it's good. so good. People, I mean, people don't shit on it. But they don't mention it in their favorites, um, I think. So, but they don't shit. I have a hypothesis. I think it's because it starts off slow, doesn't have as much violence. So the four that usually hit the bottom of the nine, which again, these are all movies that people wish they could make. Some some people. You've got Death Proof, not a lot of violence. Jackie Brown, not a lot of violence. The Hateful Eight. A lot of violence the last hour or yeah. so, but you go an hour before anyone even dies. Yeah. And that was the longest until the other movie, I think, that is dropped down a bit, too. No. Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood. Too, yeah. Not a lot of violence. <laughs> All the other ones, people are like, I love Django. I love yeah, Kill Bill. Yeah. You know, because everyone's getting fucking mutilated. I love him, too. <laughs> but I do believe that if you hang in with Hateful Eight, it combines oh, his ability to write great dialogue and characters and really ratchet up tension yeah. and then hit you. Because once... Smithers dies. Mm-hmm. All bets. Oh, the fucking yeah. The it's, it's violence it's so the rest good. of the way. Then, but you got to wait an hour or so. Right. But and then and then I also think it's amplified by Ennio Morricone's score. Like mm-hmm. it was almost like when I saw that movie. Not that his other movies aren't real movies, but this one was just like he made a movie that probably could have came out in the seventies. This seems like a movie that w- that <laughs> he saw and was influenced by. This this mm-hmm. it almost doesn't seem like a fan movie. It almost seems like. He made an actual movie. You know, I'm not trying to, you know. Yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. But that's what that's why I was so proud of him when I saw this movie. It was like, holy shit, you did it. I was like, wow, mm-hmm. it's incredible. But yeah, Pulp Fiction is I mean, the nostalgia is definitely there and the meaning of what it has done to me, but it it truly is that great of a movie. And to just have that impact on pulp culture and filmmaking in general and just change the way films were made, Pulp Fiction is an important film. And that's why it's my favorite of his movies. And one of my favorite films of all time. 
And that's a wrap on this month's edition of Pulp Reflections. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Mr. Austin Kennedy, co-host of the Film Geek Time Machine podcast, for joining me today. I had an absolute blast discussing the influences that helped to make Pulp Fiction the cinematic masterpiece it is. Now you can find the links to the Film Geek Time Machine podcast and the show's socials in our show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you'd be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the Church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other fellow Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. So be sure to join me again in two weeks as Devon Taylor, co-host of the Spectre Cinema Club podcast, joins me on our monthly character study series as we take an in-depth look at the Bible verse spouting, porcating hitman, Jules Winfield, to see what makes him tick. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.